This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership, and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 387 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Navy SEAL and Chief of Staff of the American Addiction Center's Dan Cirillo. Now, I'm constantly blown away by these incredibly alpha men and women that come on the podcast who have the illusion, these, these professions that they're in have this illusion of being immortal, being superheroes, but yet the courage is in the storytelling. They come on this show and tell these powerful journeys that they were on, the highs and the very deep lows. They talk about addiction and mental health and some of these areas that we've stigmatized. 
And Dan is absolutely leading in this area. His story itself is incredibly powerful. The route he took to find his way out of the dark place is powerful. And what he's doing now with the addiction centers and his fellow SEALs is absolutely incredible as well. So, so much to this conversation. Before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to the app you listen to this on, subscribe leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every rating truly elevates this project, making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these amazing men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dan Cirillo. Enjoy. Dan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So I heard your conversation with Andy Stumpf. You're the second person, actually, that's been on Andy's show that I've kind of snatched up as well. I had Mike Glover on yesterday. Um, But uh, yeah, I heard your conversation with him and uh, a friend of mine had pointed me towards that particular episode. And I'm really looking forward to your experience with the tactical environment and and addiction and, and bringing that to my audience. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. All right. Well, the first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? (laughs) I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Beautiful. All right. So I know that you weren't born there. So starting at the very beginning, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. So I was born in a little town called Othello, Washington, and uh, grew up mostly about 90 miles away in a place called Yakima, Washington, the Yakima Valley. So Grandview, Mapton, Sunnyside, that's where my people are from. Um, my mother, it was, uh, she was just a worker, you know, nothing special. Um, you know, she, every job she could get to kind of keep, keep us fed. It was myself. Uh, I'm the youngest, my sister, who's the oldest and my brother, David, who's the middle child. And, um, we were the parent, we're the, we're the children of a single mom. Uh, and, uh, we have different parents, so our different dads. So they, my sister and brother have, uh, their dad who he just recently just died not too bad, not too long ago. Great guy, really good guy. And, uh, my father, I never met. And so my mom pretty most raised us for most of the time until my brother and sister went to go live with my, uh, with, with their dad. Beautiful. Now I know you mentioned in one of the interviews that I read, uh, an uncle Fred. So was he kind of like that father figure for you? Yeah, so uh, my uncle Freddie, he's 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 just a he's he's a, he's just a man, right? So um, I always, you know, my mom because she worked and you know she, you know she was young, so I kind of spent a lot of time with different relatives. Uh, my mom has five brothers, and so I would spend a lot of time with really the majority, about four of them. And um, my uncle Fred is somebody who, when uh, I spent a lot of time with him, and then you know I was about twelve years old. I was getting in, in trouble and my mom was kind of doing some, some, some things that were getting a little crazy. I went to go live with my uncle Fred and uh, it was the first time I'd ever had a real strong male figure in my life in a positive way. And I had other male figures in my life, but they weren't very positive. And uh, he showed me, you know, what, how a man treats a woman and how a, how a man treats his children and how a man treats other people and how other people look at him. And you know, he was a bishop in the Mormon church. Um, he, you know, he's a Vietnam veteran. He worked for roadway trucking for literally his entire career. Um, he'd, he'd go to work at four in the morning, come home and 
get in his garden and garden and do, you know, chop wood and, and, uh, just did everything he could to provide for his family. And, and, you know, he was, a, he was a tough guy, but he wasn't, a, he wasn't a, 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 um, he wasn't a mean person. You know, his way of discipline was for me to, to move the wood pile. You know, he never raised his voice. It was just something that, the way he raised me for the, for the time that I lived with him was so different than the way I had encountered up to then, you know, and, um, it's just very, very impactful in my life at that time and for the, for my whole life, actually. Well, it struck me reading that as well, that, you know, you refer to him as a real man. And that's something I think that I've, I've through my lens have, have seen kind of distorted. And I, I don't want to singularly blame, you know, Hollywood, but it seems like there's been this facade of manliness where, like you said, it's a kind of boys don't cry tough, almost like you said, mean version of a man. And yet, the the reality of a true man is someone who's tough when they need to be, but also very caring and compassionate when they need to be. Yeah, you know, and, and the job that I do now, I, I hear, I hear the, I call, they're just excuses. I hear every excuse as to why somebody has failed themselves, their family, and their job. It's just excuses, right? And I, I coach football, I, I mentor kids, and you know, I articulate those two stories, and, and people start talking about, you know how they, the, the people, their kids don't listen to them, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I always ask them, you know, not, not in the outside the therapy world, but in the therapy world, like who taught your kid to throw a football? And, you know, you see the look on their face and I go, that, that's, that's where it starts there. You hired some personal trainer to take care of your kid to do that. You put him in every sport, but you didn't coach him. And your excuse is, oh, because my work is so busy. Well, then, then you show what your priority is. And, and, and I let him know, you know, that it's an excuse because I literally know that I'm one of the busiest people on earth right now. And my entire priority is my children. You know, I, I've always coached my kids and everything. I've always broken away to be a father. And that's something that I think people just use as an excuse. I think their children, for some men, are their burdens to them because they didn't really want them. It was kind of the thing to do. And once they became a father, it was the woman, the wife's job, it's her job to raise these kids. And I come home, I'm the disciplinarian. And that's just so such a candy ass excuse. And, you know, I've seen it so many hundreds of times. I, I own gyms in a very affluent community of Bellevue, Washington. And um, it, it's just a, it's just a candy ass excuse to, to be a, a non-present father. Absolutely. Well, the, I think your perspective will be interested in, excuse me, interesting on this next question. I've asked a few people, a handful of people on here. Again, from a completely different generation myself, but coming from England. So, you know, World War II was a very impactful, um, you know, chapter in my country's history or my original country's history. I look now at, you know, a lot of the issues that I've seen as a first responder myself with my own two eyes and, and then some of these kind of systemic things that we see. And I, I'm, I'm blown away how, we went from the greatest generation in you know that we that we say in the world that truly understood you know what it was to be a man or a woman truly understood the the word sacrifice and then how we managed to kind of slip backwards even in the 50s to the point where we're hanging black people from trees again i i don't understand how we went from such a great example within our own you know grandparents generation to some of the complete disconnection of the duty as a man and a woman in a nation that we see now? Well, you know, it, 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 comfort allows people to, to get lazy. 
and and panic and I wouldn't say panic. What I would say is self-preservation forces people to work together. You know, it forces people to dig into themselves and dig deep to solve problems. And what you're seeing now is everything is easy, right? You, you, anything you need is at the touch of a button, and um, everything you know. You want something, you, it just appears because it's it's not like you had to go. You didn't have to go to the store anymore, right? Like I, I'm, I'm the worst. I'm, I'm the worst at it. I'd never go to stores. I just go to Amazon because I am a busy guy and it's sacrificing time. What you know? What? What? How much time do I want to give to something compared to what I could give something else? And the problem is, it's it's abused. People abuse it. People are very envious of each other today, than more so than they were back in the day because of social media. And it allows them to form a lot of excuses and allows them to take the easy way out over and over again. And you're seeing it more and more and more of kids graduating college and going, I should have a job. And they don't have no idea how to work. And, you know, I, I bring up the sports thing again because I hear from parents all the time, like, you know, my, I want my kid to be this great athlete, you know, but he's, he's lazy. He has no work ethic. I can't get him to do anything. What is the secret? And I'm like, and I, I it's, it's so funny to me because I just say, do you have a gardener? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, there's your problem right there. <laughs> yep. Right. I mean, seriously, I grew up mowing my lawn. I was the gardener. I was the housekeeper. I was all those things. And people always comment on how hard my children work, et cetera. Well, I, I wanted a gardener because my kids weren't good at it, but there was no money. <laughs> and, you know, that's the thing is you make things easy on kids at a young age. Don't expect them to be hard workers at an old age. Yeah. They, why? You know, it's it, it's that doesn't make sense. If you give make everything easy for somebody in the beginning, why would they ever work hard later on? And that's really what's going on today, you know? Yeah, and no, I I agree. I grew up on a farm, so you know I, I I talk about this a few times on the on the recording. But you know I'd get to school all disheveled and exhausted, and I'd get scolded then for staying up all night watching TV or something. And I was like, no, I was lambing, <laughs> or I was yeah. you know baling hay or whatever it was. So yeah, and you know I I try and impart that in my son now, but it's also it's challenging because as you said, life is so easy. You almost sometimes have to manufacture work just to kind of foster that. Well, you, th- you, br- you brought up England in, in World War II England, right? And that's just what people, especially kids and, you know, even my generation doesn't really understand unless you're, unless you're a, a savant of history. I love history and I read it a lot. If it didn't come over on the ship from America, you didn't get it. And what people don't realize is they need to watch that movie with Tom Hanks. Those ships got sunk in droves. Supplies are laying on the bottom of the Atlantic. And that's what people don't realize in England. Well, people in England realize it, but America... If it didn't come over on that ship, if that ship didn't make it through Torpedo Alley, and if it didn't arrive, you didn't get to eat it. It's because England doesn't produce food for its country, and especially in a wartime England, right? And people don't realize that kind of stuff, you know. And when I, I remember, I'm I'm very thankful for such small little details now, you know, being in Iraq, being being overseas and whatnot. And I remember the first time we got a toilet. I remember the first time we ate a hot meal. I remember the first time I had a shower. You know, and and that those things are very impactful on a person when you don't have it for months on end. You know, so we need more. We need more of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what have been your observations of the last seven or eight months? Because you know, from from my lens, seeing the ill health of the nation from the responders' perspective, which I think is a very raw, real look at the health of the nation. You know, I see an opportunity to improve health. I see a mirror being held up by this particular you know virus. 
but sadly, I don't see a lot of ownership of the individual or even of, uh, you know, of government agencies taking an a, advantage of this time and saying, right, we're going to start shaping the health of the nation again. What has been your perception of, of this pandemic? Uh, another reason for to be to form excuses, you know, like it, what is everybody's excuse why they don't get in shape? They haven't got the time. I don't have enough time. I don't have time. So you've been out of work for months and people gained weight and became alcoholics. Right now, that's not everybody, obviously, in their excuses. Well, I don't have a gym. Well, prisoners get in shape and they don't have gyms either. You know, like I got in shape overseas with it, putting two pieces of concrete on a, on a, on a steel pole. It, it, it's just reason for excuses. And, you know, I have a buddy of mine, you know, he's a great guy, uh, Andy Arabito. He makes knives, right? And Andy's like me. He's a SEAL and he's an entrepreneur. And people are like, oh, my God, you're so smart. Well, he, he, he didn't know anything about making knives. He just decided he wanted to make a knife. And now he makes millions of dollars a year off knives. And he busted his ass on social media. He busted his ass at trade shows. He made sure he made quality product. And that's not an anomaly. That's just hard work. Now, you've had all these people out of work for months, you know, engineers, et cetera. Why are there no new products being, coming out of the market? Why are there no massively new, wonderful app that, oh, my God, you got to try this app? You've had nothing but time. It doesn't cost anything to build something, you know, and if you're going to build a car, obviously, but like making a knife costs about a hundred dollars and, you know, you sell the knife for a thousand dollars, making an app. If you're a computer guy, costs you nothing other than twenty nine ninety nine. So people use this whole entire COVID thing as an excuse. You know, they, they let fear overtake them, especially government officials. You know, that, that really, you don't even want to get me started on this. <laughs> I never, I, I, unfortunately for me is I never got any time off. I worked the entire time. I've traveled more this year than I've probably traveled any other time. Matter of fact, you know, we don't have it on video, but my total miles this year, just on Southwest alone, were 60, Southwest 62,000. I had 17 flights. Alaska, 89,000. at 35 flights. Delta, I had 17,000 at 10 flights. American, I had 22,000. And United had 7,000 miles. That's just this year. And some of the least, so, least cramps flights you've been on for a long time, probably. Oh, yeah. It was awesome. Man. <laughs> Every single time. But uh, people use excuses. And, and that's it. as soon as you let excuses into your world, they become easier and easier and easier. You start taking the easy way out. And then that's your life. You know? And the flip, the flip side is you can change anytime you want. You just got to want it. Absolutely. And I think that's it. Is there's been a lack of ownership of the individual. And then I think there's been an abuse of really shitty leadership to instill fear in the masses too. So it's been a, you know, a compounding effect of both. Oh yeah. I mean the, the leadership, I, you know, it is just, it, it just makes me sick to my stomach to see some of the people who are, and everybody of course blames the single figurehead, right? They blame a president, they blame a prime minister, but there's, you know, 10,000 people underneath them. They're leaders too, making crappy decisions. And it's just, you know, you, you, when you when you go to vote, don't you should really be questioning who you're voting for? Not the not the prime figure, but everybody down on that ballot. Like, hey, why am I voting for a person who has never had a job yet? They're running for public office. Oh, let me jump on that bandwagon. You know, like put some thought into this when you're voting. Research who your candidates are. You know, and if you don't research every candidate you vote for, don't wonder why why poor decisions are made from bureaucratic you know entities. You know, you got uh, right now in the state of Washington, it, from my old community, there's a congressman who sits there who she has never had a job, yet she is a sitting congresswoman. 
She graduated college, trust fund baby, paid for an election, and people have voted for her. And the reason I bring this up is my buddy Tim was running against her. Highly decorated Navy SEAL, built a business, family man, you know, God-fearing man, and he lost. And now look at the state of Washington. Look at Seattle, right? Don't, don't wonder why it happens. It's there. It shows you right there, you know? Are you saying if a Navy SEAL was at the helm, it wouldn't have happened? <laughs> I'm pretty yeah. sure it wouldn't oh, have. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> no, it would not have happened, you know? So. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I became a citizen just over four years ago. So I was just shy of being eligible to vote the last time. And so this is my first vote. And, and I've struggled because I, I fucking hate the term lesser of two evils when you're talking about 300 million people, the cream of the crop. But, um, you know, when I actually got to see the ballot, there was some great incentives. There was one that makes sure that there's an improvement of benefits for widows or, or, or families of military that were either killed or injured. And there's another one to support the local fire department here. So those are very important. Those votes count. And then even, you know, the two for my own personal thing, this is, this is just purely my journey was the Libertarian Party, which I've been exposed to a lot recently as a lot of, uh, you know, military people that come on here seem to lean that way as well. And while the, the main two were, you know, throwing shit at each other, that seemed to be a party that actually aligned closer to what I believe in anyway. So I didn't, it, people tell me it's a wasted vote because it's not going to change one or the other. I don't care. It's my vote. What if everyone votes that one particular party that's outside the two? Maybe they'll push a change in a different way. But while this system is set up, just like you said, for millionaires to contend and no one else, then, you know, we have to change the system. In the meantime, I, I think that looking at it as just two parties is the wrong way of looking at it, too. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. That's the it's funny is I, I know people in, in I have people in my family and I know people who are friends of mine. They're either going to vote all Democrat or all Republican. And, you know, I'm I, I don't I'm not either. Right. I, I don't know what I am, actually. I don't know if I'm a libertarian. I don't know what I am. I know that I was very impressed with Andrew Wang. Right. Andrew Yang, excuse me. Um, I thought he had a good message. He, he's somebody I could have voted for. You know, I, I sit here and look at the two primary candidates. And I when I remember when Donald Trump and before he even announced uh, my buddy Brad was working for him. I remember telling my wife he's going to win. And she's like, what do you mean? I go, he's going to win because he get pissed off people off the couch to go vote. And that's what happened because when you're given candidates of you know, the lesser two evils, okay, great. I'm going to give lesser two evils. But when you're handed a despicable candidate, all right, in Hillary Clinton and you got Donald Trump, why would, why would you ever vote for Hillary Clinton? Because she's Democrat and that's what people do. They focus in. Now on the flip side, people are disgusted with Donald Trump, but they're Republicans. So they're going to vote. And I, and I sit there and I'm like, why can't we compromise in the middle? Why are we in the middle of a presidential debate? screaming at each other, you know, mocking each other. It's it, it, that that's embarrassing to me. It's embarrassing. We we need to come together and solve problems whichever party line you sit on. And there is there is a rational decision behind every one. The problem is is there it's clearly evident that one of the candidates is so corrupt and has been corrupt for so long. Why would you ever expect that guy to compromise? He's not doing this because he cares about anybody. He's doing this for his bottom line, for his personal gain. And that's the problem with American politics is way too many people go into American politics for personal gain and not to help the people. And that's the truth. Absolutely. And even like you said, some of the the other candidates, Dan Crenshaw, Andrew um, Yang, um, Tulsi Gabbard, you know, there's some people that people are actually excited about. 
Yeah, but even yeah. for me, I mean, this may like you know ruffle some some right feathers, but I thought Bernie. I think this country could need a dose of compassion and, and kindness. And you know, is it going to be any any worse than some of the other ones you had? I don't think so. But any of the other good ones on either side never make it to the top. So you know, no. do I think my vote counts? Yes, I think I've done some good things locally, some good things hopefully the fa- for the family and military. But the fact that we always end up with the people that no one wanted at the beginning, you have to also question, is the system actually a true democracy or do we need to kind of control or delete this whole voting process and start in a 2020 version that allows anyone in the U.S. to run for that position? Yeah, you know, and what's funny is, you know, I get in these debates all the time and people go, well, the, you know, Trump and Biden, I'm like, you, and, you know, Hillary, Trump, whatever. I'm like, you do realize we wouldn't be having this conversation if John F. Kennedy Jr. was alive. He would have he would have won in a landslide victory. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's where Hillary Clinton, she took over his seat in the, the, the Democratic Party, that senatorial seat. That's was John F. Kennedy Jr. spot. Had he run for president, I, 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 you, you, you're going to have to find somebody who wouldn't vote for him. You know, and. That's I, I, that is what I'm that is what I'm waiting for. A young candidate, you know, a Dan Crenshaw, a Derek Van Orden, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a military guy, but somebody who's going to come in and have the pulse of the nation. And they're not going to run on whether abortion is legal or not. I'm, I sit here and I hear that all the time. I'm like, who gives a shit? Are we really going to waste 30 minutes of our time talking about this? Like, it, 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 come on, man. And, and, and where do I sit with it? I'm not even going to talk about it because it's a waste of time. It's already in the, it's already legal. It's already done. We're moving on. Let's talk about real issues. Let's talk about education, which is broken in America. Let's talk about healthcare for the poor. Obamacare, broken. It benefited nobody. Let's talk about real issues that actually impact our way of life, not whether or not some 16 year old girl gets knocked up or not. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, what we're going to discuss today is, is, is another you know, true pandemic. And that's what, um, now, I was talking with Mike before, and it was interesting, and I'm going to obviously get your perspective too, but with him doing counterterrorism and seeing the the uh, terrorists basically being subsidized by the illicit drug trade, you know, it's something I talk about a lot. That one policy of, you know, the prohibition of drugs, I think, has contributed to so much death and destruction that, you know, is thousands of times the deaths that we're supposedly, you know, worried about with this current thing that we're dealing with. Oh, yeah. You know, I, you know, I work in obviously in the drug world and it's so funny to me because we do have we have we have serious drug addicts, we have serious, serious alcoholics. But, you know, you sit here and you, I look at it from this broad spectrum. Right. I come from the state of Washington where marijuana is legal and you sit here and marijuana took forever to become legalized. Yet I have I don't have one patient who is in my clinic who is a marijuana addict, right? I don't have one. I have thousands of patients who are prescription drug addicts. I have thousands of patients who are alcoholics. I don't have any who are marijuana addicts. And yet it's been illegal and still illegal in most of the states. And it again, come down, have people look at this from an outside in and go, why, do, why are we promoting alcohol and bashing a plant-based medication? Why are we allowing prescription drugs to go rampant through our system, but then saying you can't do some, this other remedy? You know, and, and, and it, it just, it, unfortunately, it does come down to money. Drug companies lobbying bodies is, are massive. Alcohol lobbying bodies are massive. And the revenue generated from those things is massive. 
and you they will spend more money to create an addict than they will to treat an addict. That's the unfortunate part. Absolutely. Well, I want to explore that, you know, once we kind of get to that point in, in the story, but I, I told you we've hit some tangents right off the bat and we have. <laughs> <laughs> I get on, I get on, them, man. I get, I get passionate about a few things and, you know, I get myself in trouble sometimes, but I, you know, it's one of those things where I'm never going to be a person who is accused of not saying what's on their mind. Right. And, and I'm, I'll, I'm bold enough to, to, to speak the truth and fierce enough to question the lies. Absolutely. That's what we need to hear. We, we hear the filtered shit every day on the television. You know, we hear, yeah. you know, the, the censored versions. So, or the, the prepaid versions, everyone look at it. So this is, this is what I love about the podcast medium. People can speak freely. And, and like we said before we start recording and not get interrupted in, in the process too. Yeah. All right. Well then, so with, with your kind of returning back to your young life, then just before we get to the, the military, what about, um, sports? Were you, uh, an athlete when you were young? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was a pretty good athlete. You know, I, I played a lot of football, obviously I wrestled. I, I pretty much played everything. I played soccer. I wrestled. I played basketball. Um, once I got into high school, I primarily focused on football and wrestling. Um, I loved ba- basketball was my love, but I just wasn't good. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so you have to be kind of good to play in high school. It's, it's weird. I, they, I think they should have terrible players cause you know, they just should. But, um, and I was good at baseball. I just never loved baseball. I was just, it was just such a boring sport for me. Um, soccer was a big love of mine. Um, but you know, I just loved football, man. I, I loved football and I loved wrestling. And when you get into the wrestling world, you know, you end your season, you have a little bit of a break and then during the summer, you're wrestling other styles. And those, those things, those contact sports, that aggressive nature just really was something that, that, that floated in my boat. And I, I loved to play them. And so I, I, I was lucky enough to, um, by chance, get to go play at Escambia High School, which back in the day, they won a national title and several state titles. Emmett Smith was the running back there. And I, I didn't go there because of that. I literally, my mom got married to, um, I can't remember which number of husband it was. And uh, he got stationed in Pensacola and he happened to live down the street from Escambia High School. And so... I remember showing up to there and I thought I was actually at a, at a college because the way everything was run, being run, the football program was just ridiculously well-funded, well-organized. I learned so much from those coaches. Every single one of my coaches had played professional football. You know, it, it, we just, it, it was just, we had our own television station to broadcast our games. Right. And it was awesome. So I had that, that, I was able to get part, part of that unique experience to my junior year in high school. And, um, my stepdad at the time got new orders to go to South Carolina. And so he wanted me to go there. And by then, you know, I, I had made a name for myself in football and, you know, was, was getting some looks from some colleges. And so in South Carolina was a school called Somerville, which had the winningest coach in America at the time. And by virtue, we thought it would be a good program. And I went there to go play my senior year, which I didn't want to do because I didn't want to leave as a senior. But, you know, you're, you're, you're a kid. You kind of do what your, par- your, your parents at the time tell you to do. And it didn't turn out the way it's supposed to. You know, the, the football I played in Florida was very advanced. And the football I played in, in South Carolina, I ran the same defense my stepdad ran when he was in high school. And it was a, it was a very big letdown. And I didn't have a lot. I didn't have fun. And that's kind of when my mom and I really started um, having a massive rift in our, in between her, her and I It lasted for many, many years. And, but it was good because that's where I discovered um, 
special operations, you know, Navy SEALs. My, my buddy, JC Cope, his dad was a Navy diver. And uh, I remember kind of saying, you know, I had interest in going to the military and, and uh, I wanted to be an EOD guy. And he's like, you don't want to be an EOD guy. You want to be a, you want to be a SEAL. I'm like, what's a SEAL, you know? And so he just explained to me what it was. And, you know, he, the kind of athlete that I was and fit into it. And he's the guy who spent a lot of time with me, getting me ready, you know, working out with me in the morning. And he was another just man, right? He was a man. And, um, you know, 48 year old man who, who I really defined a lot of my life from him because that he just, he did everything by leading by example. You know, he was a military officer, but everything for him was, if you're going to work out, you, 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 you lead your men and, uh, learned a lot from him. And, you know, the fact that I, I kind of modeled myself off that now, and he's telling me, if you can't beat me in a workout, you can't be a seal. All right. And so I still kind of hold that philosophy today with the guys who I train. Like if you can't beat me in a workout, you can't go to seal training. Right. Because, you know, I'm definitely broken and old. And, um, I really learned a tremendous amount from him. So that was the one good thing that came from South Carolina. And it, it started my career going to, uh, going to the, the SEAL teams. Brilliant. Well, we're just going back to that for a second. I know I've read that you moved around a lot as a child. Um, one thing I've seen as a through line, I know that, you know, you had, you had a moment where, where you were struggling yourself in your career is a, a, a lesser kind of acknowledged part is what do we bring to the front door of our professions? You know, what trauma was in that bag before we, you know, put on the uniform, put the badge on our chest? Um, do the moving around, was that a positive experience for you? Or do you consider some of that was kind of some of the baggage that you took into the seals? That it was all baggage, you know, and that's the thing that it took me a long time to really understand that part is, you know, I moved, I basically went to 25 different schools growing up until I got to high school, you know, from living with other people to, you know, my, my mom, um, you know, God rest her soul. My mom was one of those people who, who attached herself to, to men. And so she, she couldn't live her life without a man in her life. And, uh, so, you know, when she had a new boyfriend, we moved to that guy's house or when that boyfriend broke up with her, or kicked us out, then we moved. And so, you know, or, you know, you're getting evicted, you're, you know, so I went to a lot of different schools growing up and it definitely, it caused me to be, a a very angry young man. And, you know, some of those men weren't good guys. You know, I was never sexually abused, thank God. Um, but I was physically abused and, you know, mentally abused. And basically by the time I was 14, they stopped abusing. And um, I owe that to wrestling, obviously. Um, once I learned to put men on their back and, and pummel them, nobody ever did that to me again. And so I, I, if it wasn't for those, those men hit my life at certain points, I'd probably be in jail. Um, I probably will have a very different path in my life because I, I became very predatory. I loved just to to bring great violence onto grown men. I didn't really fight guys my own age because it just wasn't a challenge. I just loved to fight grown men, you know, and and pummel them. That is something that I didn't understand that about myself. And so when I went in, you know, when I when I was training to be a SEAL, it was all about I want to go be around other Spartan men, Spartan warriors, and go hunt other men. That was my entire focus and uh, didn't understanding that the upbringing was what caused that mentality, you know, and, and that upbringing suited me for that world, but years later was actually destroying me. So, yeah. And I hear that so often, you know, I mean, it's, whether it's police, fire, military, you know, it's amazing how not, not all, but, but some more, more than people would realize 
have elements of their upbringing. Some is horrendous, like you mentioned, you know, sexual abuse. Some is is a, a much kind of milder version, but it still impacted people the same way. So understanding that at the front door is very important. And one of the I talk about this a lot. I'm probably boring the hell out of people that listen to the show often. But, you know, one of the things that I want to see is, is in my profession, actually putting people that we just hired through counseling at the beginning, forgetting the polygraph, forgetting the stupid psych test that they put us through, take that same money and just give people that you hired, you know, three sessions. So then not only can you offload some things, but you have a relationship with a counselor, a go-to for the rest of your career then. Absolutely. You know, that's a big initiative that I'm working on now is, I really want Naval Special Warfare to embed counselors. And, you know, right now, we, Naval Special Warfare has counselors, but I literally want them to be deployed with a troop because it isn't the fact of if the guys will talk, it's when. And the only way the when becomes is the more comfortable to become with that counselor. The counselor needs to be on the range of them shooting, needs to be there when the guys are coming out of the kill house, needs to, you know, you don't, you don't need them to be part of it. But you need them so they see that face over and over and over and over again until all of a sudden they go, I'm now ready to talk. And as a person who comes from that world, you just never talk. You never talk, right? Because our world is you suck it up, suck it up. You deal with it. You know, hey, he, he's gone. Move on, right? And that, that those are just nails. Those are, I call them bricks in the backpack, you know, and you, we're big, we're strong men, right? Police officers, firefighters, you're strong men, you're strong women, but those bricks are going to pile up eventually. And eventually you're, you're going to break and, you know, hopefully you're like me and you, you bend and you go and get some bricks dumped out of your backpack. But some guys break and they, they put a gun in their mouth and they die. And that's, I want to do everything in my part to start preventing that and start helping guys, you know, but you know, childhood trauma is so big and I'll give you a tiny story that I, that was a, a great epiphany to me. Um, it, was my son, my oldest son, when he was three years old, three or four years old, you know, I was a very young father. I was in the middle, you know, beginning of my SEAL career. I was, you know, very hardcore, very, very robust, if you would say. And I took him to ride a bike, you know, bought him a bike and, and we're riding. And of course, when you're that young, you don't go right around the block and you're a SEAL. You're like, let's go all the way down the trail, you know? <laughs> and, and so my wife and I are, are, we're taking him down, he's riding and he's having a good old time. All of a sudden he just stops and he starts crying. Right. And he, and he just gets off the bike, he's crying, whatever. And I'm like, you know, what, you know, obviously I'm, what's your problem? And, you know, he's crying, crying, crying. And when you're, when you know, when you're a 25 year old, 24 year old father, you, you, you don't handle it the way you should. Right. And so of course I, you know, I, I'm, I'm upset that he's crying. He's a sissy. He's this, he's that. I pick the bike up and I just start power walking home and just literally leave them in the dust. Right. So we get home and my wife shows me this massive spider bite on his leg. And so the bike was sitting outside. A black widow must have bit him or something, right? So now fast forward literally 22 years later. And we're doing – I had this big hill behind my house in Seattle where I would take my SEAL candidates to run the hill and ride the bike up the hill. And my, my oldest son, you know, he's a hardcore kid, man. He's tough. And he can't ride the bike up the hill. And I'm like, you know, Dominic, what, what's going on, man? He's like, oh, I never learned to ride a bike. And, and in your brain, I'm, I'm in my brain, I'm the great dad, right? Like, oh, sure, sure you did. I, I taught you to ride a bike. He's like, no, dad, I, I never learned to ride a bike. I'm like, well, why not? He's like, I, I don't know. He doesn't even, he didn't even know. And so that day, literally, he's like 20, 22 years old. I'm teaching him to ride a bike and he eventually rides it. 
And it came back to me as to why he never rode a bike. And that trauma from that spider bite, and to the, he, literally he's deathly afraid of spiders. And you should see him. He's about six foot one, about 220 pounds, jacked. And that trauma exists in his brain. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah it doesn't yeah. matter what it is. I mean, I, you know, not a big story, but I don't think it really affected me, but I was in a house fire when I was four. And the reason I talk about it now is because I'd forgotten about it. It literally came out when I was, when I was writing this book and I'd totally forgotten. But, you know, of course that then, you know, ended up, I'm sure, subconsciously driving me towards the fire service. But I had compartmentalized that to the point where I had literally forgotten about the entire fire career I had that I almost died in, you know, when I was four years old. So it's, you have the things that we remember that are obvious trauma, but there's other things that we've got locked away that we might not realize are the, are the cause for drinking or some of the other issues that are going on in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's funny is I have a similar story. Um, I, I, up until recently, I've never liked dogs, right? So I just thought dogs were filthy animals, just keep them away from me, et cetera. And I never knew why I didn't like dogs. And so when I actually went to therapy and I, and I took the medication called Ibogaine, it, you know, unlocked my brain, obviously. And, and I remember sitting down on my couch and it was cold. It was September and we're in the Washington. It was right after Mount St. Helens. And my mom's like, I'm going to start a fire. And my mom grabbed a can of gasoline and poured it in the fireplace. And, you know, internet shows you why you don't do that now. But there's no internet back then. It's just my mom. And she lit the fire and the flame traveled um, across the carpet up to the curtains and the house started on fire. And so I'm there in my underoos watching Dukes of Hazard, and my mom grabs me and we run into the house. Well, the dog got trapped inside. And for 15 minutes, I had to listen to the dog dying and seeing the dog run past the windows on fire. And I, I, that came out and I, and it was like, Oh my God, uh, that's why I did. And I never, I never wanted another dog again. You know, now I have puppies now and they're, I love my little puppies. Right. But, um, i never understood why I hated dogs so much. See, it's funny because I had that exact same experience at our house fire. Their poodle got trapped and there was like a glass window in their kitchen. And, and yeah. we could hear her screaming. And my sister actually grabbed like a branch and tried to break the window, but it was, I mean, she was only eight. So she actually was the reason that we got out alive. But yeah, uh, yeah so I can totally relate. I can literally, now, now my mind's unlocked. I can kind of hear that sound in uh, the, the deep recess of my mind. So it's, it's funny. It's, I, I never believed in suppression, right? I never believed in counseling. I never believed in, in this job that I sit in today. I, I could never, 10 years ago ever, I would, I would probably punch somebody if they had suggested this. <laughs> And, and I understand the brain now and I understand, I understand trauma and I understand how much trauma affects people and everybody has PTSD, right? And warriors get, a, you know, you're a veteran, you have PTSD. No, everybody has it. It's just a matter of when it's going to catch up to you. Absolutely. Well, well, speaking of your career, so um, you're one of the few people I had that were at the end of the SEAL teams pre 9-11. So... Um, I'm always intrigued because b before that point, you know, there's, there's an element of, of training for hypothetical, you know, um, scenarios and the same in the fire service. I think the, the good departments know the, the hazards that could occur in a department doesn't mean if it's never ever happened before, they're still training for that. Um, what was the, the pre 9 11 training like for you, um, versus the post 9 11? 
So I was really lucky. Uh, my first platoon that I got in, everybody in that platoon had just come back from Somalia. And so even though they didn't get to do very much in Somalia, they still got to do some stuff. So they came back with a mindset that we're probably going to go back to Somalia. And so our most of our workup, that first workup was all based on going back to Somalia and getting after it. So those guys, um, a couple of them are pretty famous now, you know, Jocko Willink, obviously Jocko's pretty famous guy. And, and, uh, they really focused on us doing a lot of training and we trained really hard. And, you know, Brian Raymond, who is our platoon commander, he's one of the most decorated CIA case officers in history now. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of good dudes, Mike Everett, who is in the movie act of valor. He's a guy who gets shot in the face in the movie act of valor and just a ton of good hardcore dudes. And my platoon chief, Georgie young, you know, just another man. Right. And we trained, we trained really hard. So my initial into the SEAL teams was awesome. Everything we did was hardcore. We were training for war. Well, then Somalia ended. And right about that same time, the SEAL teams went through a transition where if you wanted to make rank, you had to do certain positions. So if you wanted to be a chief, you had to be an LPO. If you wanted to be a senior chief, you had to be a chief. If you wanted to be a master chief, you had to be a senior chief, you know, a, a, a task unit, uh, LNO back then. And so guys who had been hiding out behind desks came out of the woodwork. And my second platoon, two of my leaders in that platoon were those guys. My officers are great. Um, hardcore guys, my senior enlisted guys were terrible and everything in training was kind of hypothetical and, you know, like, Oh, well, this is what we would do in war. But since we're not in war, we'll just do it this way. And, you know, and I came from having a platoon chief who was so hardcore, all the tendons in his ankle were torn and that's how he ran. He'd run on the side of his foot, never complained. He was our lead climber. He was one of our best shooters. He could PT like an animal. And my next platoon chief was just this old, decrepit, like, and I, I'm like, this guy's a SEAL? Like, seriously? Are you joking right now, you know? And uh, I just, zero respect for the guy. Like, you just retire. You know, he's probably only like 40, right? So for me, that was an old man. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, he's just lazy. He just did everything he could to kind of, Hey guys, I'll be the safety. Oh, Hey guys, I'll be the safety. Which means you're just going to watch the event happen. And you're like, in case something happens, I'll just be the safety. Oh, and you sit there and look at him. And I, I remember Georgie young, who's my platoon chief from before. I'm like, Georgie would have freaking fought you if you tried to make him the safety. Oh, you know, and it just such a letdown. And then my third platoon was pretty much the same thing. I had great officers and two candy ass enlisted leaders. And, um, one of them was so bad. We actually gave him a broomstick and that's how he had to go through the kill house. And I would sit there. I'm like, if, if I had, if I was that shitty of an operator, they would kick me out of the SEAL teams, but he's a chief. And so he gets to stay. And I called him road retired on active duty. Right. And it was a very big letdown, man. Just let down. We, we practiced for nothing. We all knew that there was no war. Bill Clinton's the president. And it's just like, Oh, well, whatever. We're all just going to talk about war, but we're never going to do it. And so I was actually going to get out of the military until September 11th happened. And so that's what the SEAL teams were like before before the war. You know, we talked a lot, and but we didn't really do shit. And even the shit that we did was had never we never transitioned back into the war. The gear that we wore didn't transition. The the type of missions we tr did didn't transition. And so when the war started, you literally took the book and ripped it apart and said, Look, "We got to rewrite this thing quickly." And you rewrote it after every platoon that would go over. They'd come back and like, "Don't do this. Do this." And okay, there's a chapter of a book and. I was lucky enough to be part of some of those chapters and, and be 
lucky enough to be in a platoon with some just great leaders, great, great men, great warriors, and um, also be the command where if you didn't cut the mustard, they kicked you out and, um, you know, get go to war with them. And so it was massive, two entirely different animals. You're talking one animal, a lazy dog that lays down, the other animal's a pit bull pulling at a leash. That's the difference in the SEAL teams from pre to post war. Yeah, well, and I can relate to that kind of leadership, and I'd be interested to kind of get your perspective after this, but I've had departments where the hiring standards were set extremely high. Kind of the orientation, you know, the, the probationary period was a crucible. And, you know, one particular one, Anaheim, out in California, I talk about a lot. You know, you literally were in fear of your job for the entire year. And then when you got through, there was admiration from the men and women that you, you know, joined. But then there was also the beginning of, you know, learning, truly learning how to be a firefighter. And then conversely, I worked for a department where the entire upper brass had never been an actual firefighter in their life, a true firefighter. So you had, you know, amongst them some good, aggressive men and women that were just banging against a brick wall because the egos were so fragile at the top of being, you know, understanding and knowing that the, the people on the ground actually knew a lot more about their job. And they, they, were, they were humbly trying to change it, but there was so much fear of the, the lack of knowledge that they just suppressed any growth whatsoever to the point where, you know, myself and, and several of the other aggressive firefighters actually just ended up leaving. But what was the, did you see any like, um, you know, horrific side effects or ripple effects of poor leadership with actually costing injuries or even life on the battlefield? Yeah. I mean, I, luckily I never saw it cost life. Um, I definitely, saw it nearly cost life many times. There was a period of time where we had a CO, a commanding officer of BUDS, who decided to just completely get rid of standards. And he had us instructor staff going to, in on Saturdays to, to give guys tests until they passed. And he would hide during hell week so that he could catch instructors if they were doing too, going too hard on the students. And you had students, I had a student of mine who quit seven times and they put him back in. He missed a whole day of Hell Week because he was somebody's son. I'm like, oh, well, this is his dad. And I'm like, don't give a shit. And literally got pulled aside. Like, if if you don't stay away from him, we're gonna we're gonna kick you out. You're gonna fire you as an instructor. And during that time, you're like, is, are you being serious? Well, then the war started, and those a lot of those guys showed up to the SEAL team, especially the SEAL Team Seven. We called him. We called him after that CEO's last name. I mean, that's kind of see. We did was we kicked out almost 75% of them. Like they were just so weak. They were so pathetic and guys who should have never been the SEAL teams. And I inherited one of the guys as a leader, as an officer. And he nearly got us killed multiple times until luckily we went to our casket commander and basically said, if you don't get rid of him, we're going to kill him. And he was removed. But it, it took that of us literally documenting every single thing this idiot did. And we came back from deployment. He was given a 1-0 fit rep, so lowest fit rep you can get. And they rewrote his fit rep. We can't do that to him. Why not? Well, he's a great writer. He'll do great things to the SEAL teams in the future. Like, this guy is the most incompetent person, SEAL, I've ever met. And you're going to let him stay in this community because he's a great writer. And I, and I saw that more times than I can count. I saw guys who got to have who who failed in combat because they were good runners 
got promoted. And that, that's not a joke. And that's, I'm sure you saw that in the fire academy, fire department, guys who shove their nose up somebody's asses, get promoted. And you sit there as, as the guys in the ground, you're like, what is going on here? You know? And, and that's just something that's always disgusted me that I never thought I'd be part of and have to, to view and see, but I saw it and it, it was unfortunate. And then I, I know in the, as time went on, some of those guys got into more leadership positions and, I really hope that they weren't part of other guys dying, but I, it wouldn't surprise me if they were. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I, I've talked about this before. If, if if you're talking about the plumbing industry and you end up flooding someone's house, okay, you know, that, that sucks, but it's an insurance claim, you know, and people might lose some possessions, but that's it. But in a field where lives are at stake, the lives of our own people and the people that we're serving – it's completely unacceptable, but it is. It's, it's a. It's something that we see not all, but in some departments, and then that creates, as you probably you know heard stories from from your men, um, you know organizational stress. So uh, compounding to the shifts and you know the things that people are seeing and doing in police departments, in fire departments. Now you've got this organization where these men and women are trying to be the best version of themselves in their department. They're actually getting suppressed and put down or, or like you said, put in very, very dangerous positions. Yeah. You know, in, in, I see it, I see how it affects leaders who become senior leaders is they're not, they're not worried about making a bad mistake. They're worried about making any mistake. Right. And they're, they'd rather be make no mistakes instead of, being aggressive and possibly making a mistake. And what you end up having there is risk averse leaders, leaders who are risk averse and, and they make excuses for it. Well, this is just the way it is. This will pay big dividends. In the end, you just don't understand the big picture. And you sit there and you're like, you're, you're just soft. Like you're soft and you are scared to make a bad decision. You would rather look good by not doing anything than look bad by doing something. And I see that all the time in business. I see it all the time in business. You know, you, when you really get guys and expose them for what they are, they don't, they, you don't have to fire them. They just quit. You just quit, you know, and, and you wonder how they got there in the first place and how they got there was to not make waves. Absolutely. Well, well, while you were deployed, another question that I, I like to ask anyone who, you know, is actually seeing combat. Um, and I frame this the same way each time. So you know, the civilian world, myself included, you know, we get, we got a couple of polarizing views of, of wars. Either, you know, it's, it's a bunch of baby killers or, you know, John Rambo <laughs> running around, one of the two. Um, but, you know, I hear now, I've been, I've been so, so lucky, so honored to have had so many people from all the branches on here now. And you hear of the human element through, through the soldier's eyes. So were there any, um, moments when you were first deployed, you, you know, your, your early times where you saw firsthand the atrocities in the country you were in. So regardless of the politics behind it, you realized that these were, these were some horrible people that need to be removed from the planet. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I saw some, I saw some, the very, I think the very first is either the first or second patrol we actually went on in Baghdad. Um, we re we responded to these six Japanese uh, aid workers and they had gotten pulled out of their car. There was one female with them. They had raped her so bad. They popped her hips out of socket and then they crushed their heads with stones. And I, I just couldn't fathom the, the, I, I don't know the right word to put it into that the human being could do that to another human being, you know, and, and you, you, we, you would see things in, you know, 
for us, we, we hunted nothing but bad guys. So we knew exactly who they were and what they had done. And you would, you can't, you can't fathom the things that a, that a human being can do to another human being, you know, and it's just, it's, 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 it's just mind boggling the horror of what men can do to other, other people, you know? Yeah. Well, conversely, I mean, that, that's absolutely horrific. And then that's, that's sadly, we need to hear those stories. You know, these, these are the, the absolute sociopaths that, you know, we're sending men and women over to hopefully prevent from terrorizing what people don't understand is a lot of their own people too. So conversely, what about the, the, the humanity side? Another picture that's, that's painted poorly, I think, is that all Iraqis are our enemy, all our Afghanis are our enemy, but you hear the normality of most of these families that you guys are interacting with while pursuing these, these shitbags. So what, were there any kind of like, um, comparative moments where you saw almost like a, an Iraqi or Afghani version of the family that you had back home? Yeah, you know, um, you know, the first few weeks you're there, everybody's the enemy. Every single person that walks is an enemy. You know, that's the way your brain works. But the longer you're there, you start realizing that they're just people. And amongst those people are shitheads. Just like here in America, you have criminals. And the when there's no law and order, criminals rise. You're seeing it in America every day. When there's no law and order, criminals become criminals. They do what criminals do. And they do it without regard for anything. Consequences, there's no consequences right now, right? So what you see in America with the looting and the, and, you know, brutality towards police times that by 10 in Iraq, it's just the same exact thing, but now they're just killing anybody they can kill. You just, I don't like you last year. You insulted me. So I'm just going to cut your head off. I'm going to murder your children. I'm going to drill holes in their head with a one inch fucking bit. And, you know, and you, the people there who are just kind of just trying to go about daily life, man, they just get brutalized. You know, they just get brutalized and I'm trying to find the right story of, you know, you, you could pull up, you know, there's hundreds of videos out there, but like, imagine the guy who's trying to break up, you got gang members beating up some innocent kid and some guy just walks up, tries to stop the fight next, thing you know, they're beating his head into, well, those gang members are the bad guys in Iraq. And that guy who's breaking up that fight is just some shop owner, you know, and like they, hey, we just feel like killing this guy today. And they just, would I mean, they, they just brutalize those people and, over time, you end up kind of, you understand, you can start knowing who the bad guys are. You know where they are, know how, how to spot them. And then the rest of the people are just everyday folks, you know, and they're just there to try to eke out an existence, you know. And so I was lucky enough to go there enough times to form relationships with some, some you know, people. And, you know, Johnny Walker, codenamed Johnny Walker's his book became, he and I were attached to the hip. And, you know, I started out the first night I met him, I was going to shoot him. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I was going to shoot his ass and we ended up becoming really, really good friends, you know, months and months later and many, many dangerous missions later. And it really changed my level of thinking. And, you know, in the SEAL teams, because we train for so many different variables, you would be in one room where you're in a full on fight, you go in the next room and there's women and kids and you dial it down, you're handing chem lights, candy to the kids. Whereas in the next room, there's dead bodies. Right. And that's, that's something that I, I now train executives on how to, change their mindsets quickly, offensive to defensive mindset back and forth. And I use that story a lot um, because that did ha that happened to me, you know, and uh, you, 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 you do, I think you, I think you become more compassionate uh, the longer you're there and em empathetic because you get to a point where you, you want to hurt bad guys, but you really don't want to hurt anybody who's not a bad person. You know, you, you just kind of, you have empathy for them. Like, Holy shit, you guys are in a shit sandwich right now, you know? 
Yeah, well, exactly. I think that's that's such an important picture to be painted. You know that that there's such terrorism going on, you know, against their own people, and and, and the thought that f- trying to survive and trying to to exist day to day with that level of violence, that level of hate around you, and then you know the the confusion of initially having what appear to be enemy soldiers now in your country as well. I mean, that is that is such a horrendous environment. But I think it's something that we as Brits, as Americans, as Australians, and you know, everyone else that's kind of over there, um, we as civilians need to understand the, the complexity of, of not only what that country is dealing with, but also what the military is dealing with as far as trying to identify who to kill and who not to kill. So when these collateral damage stories come back, understanding they're not running around in a uniform. This is a very, very complex issue that you have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's... You know, you you know when you're walking, when you're driving and walking the streets, you don't know who's who. You can kind of think who you know who they are, but when you're going after a target, you know exactly who that person is. You you have you've seen everything about him. You've heard the signals intelligence. You've seen videos. You're like, all right, buddy, we're coming to get you. But it's two entirely different animals, you know. And that's the that's the beauty of being a special operator. But if you compare yourself to a cop, cops don't get that luxury very often. Very very rarely do they get to go serve a warrant. There's so much process going there. So they're just walking the street and all of a sudden they're next, you know, usually by themselves and they're interacting with a confrontational person. And now you have crowds who don't even realize the story siding with the confrontational person just because it's a cop, you know, and I, I couldn't do that job, man. I couldn't do it. What's your philosophy on them riding one to a car that just again purely from a non-law enforcement layman perspective i know lapd does too you know i think um if i'm not mistaken new york does and if i got that wrong but it just seems to me like you know two would be as you guys say you know a force multiplier not only in the safety of of the law enforcement officers but also the safety of the civilians so you're less likely to draw a weapon if there's two you're going to de-escalate a lot better oh yeah it's you to me, when I don't care what your level of training is, if you're by yourself and you're facing somebody, you have a 50-50 chance for survival. Now, if you put two officers there, now you've gotten a 75-25, right? But I would, I could not do that. I, I've done stuff where I've been by myself, but I've always had a car one or two blocks away from me supporting me, right? So if something happened, I just had to be able to survive for 30, 40 seconds, you're a police officer in the middle of a, of a rural road getting in a hand-to-hand fight with somebody. You might be there half hour laying there bleeding before somebody comes and hurt, helps you. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of injuries, that's a good kind of segue. So tell me about, about your injury, your TBI, and then kind of starting towards the road to transitioning out. Yeah, so I was, uh, we went after a guy in Solder City. He was an Al-Qaeda financier. And uh, back then, um, when you're dealing with interpreters, the interpreters that were hired at the beginning of the war weren't soldiers. They were literally guys who ran 7-Eleven here in America. And, hey, come make 150 grand being an interpreter in Iraq. You're a former Iraqi. You lived there when you were 12. Well, this guy has no concept of military. And now he's working with a special operations unit, interrogating and getting information. Sometimes the information gets a little gray, about 10% of it, right? So we're going after this guy. He's an Al-Qaeda financier, and we're going to go hit this one-story house, um, climb over the wall, do our thing. And up to that point, I'd, I had been in probably three or four hand-to-hand fights up to that point um, as a breacher in the doorway, guys opening the door because, you know, they heard us coming. 
And so that night, Jay Schmidt, um, he's the lead breacher and I'm the B breacher. And I was like, I heard Jay go over the wall. He stepped on these 55 gallon drums, the thump, the thump as, as the, as the breach team went over the wall. And I heard, you know, I heard the code word for their compromised in the doorway and I can hear them fighting. I, I actually started laughing. I'm like, fucking finally, Jay, you know, like better <laughs> you than me, you know, like, cause you know, you, it's, it's scary. It's terrifying, right. To go up to a door with just an explosive charger in hand and hoping the guys surrounding you are, are going to have your back and they do, but it's still a terrifying, you have to kind of talk yourself into it. And so I heard Jay in that fight and I came in at about the number eight position and into the middle of the fight and, you know, we won. And uh, it, it was, it was, it was, it was good, man. It was good. And we sitting in there and like, Holy shit. And I was pissed. Cause I'm like, again, again, you know, and over the radio, Hey, good job. You're in the wrong house. And I really lost my temper. I'm like, this is, you know, this is BS. I started cussing, whatever. And Andrew Ledford came over to me. He's like, calm down. I'm like, dude, every single time we go to the house next door, why can't these get these guys right? He's like, it doesn't matter. We're going next door. And so I gathered my breach team or what I thought was my breach team. And we went to the house next door. Well, we just hit a one story house. Now we're going to a three story mansion right next door and go over the wall inside the yard is just, I don't know what it looks like, but it feels like it's just trash everywhere. It's pitch black and I'm trying to see, you know, and, and I had just come out of a house where the lights were on. And so now I'm even on my night vision. I'm, my eyes just aren't, they're, they're not adjusting and go from light to dark, light to dark. And, you try to lift your head up to look underneath your night vision when there's somewhat of light because it gets blurry. So I go up to the, I go up to the door. I put the charge on the door and I get about two feet away and the charge falls off the door. And I remember Mark Carter, God rest his soul. It gives me this look like seriously, dude. I'm like, dude, <laughs> So I pick up the charge off the ground, right? I put it back on the door and I start walking backward to, to, to get to the set point and it falls off the door again. And I can just feel the guys staring at me because by this point I could get a breach and charge on a door and blow it within eight seconds. I was fast. And so I can feel it. I'm like, you know, just, I'm talking to myself, solve the problem, solve the problem. So I go back, I pick up the charge again. And you got to remember when I move backward, everybody moves backward. When I move forward, everybody moves forward. So that those, that, that, that those three men cover me are moving with me. So I move forward again. I put the charge in the door and I had all this tape on my legs and I go to start ripping the tape off to tape the charge down to the door. And I look right next to the door is this big acetylene tank, one of those big welding acetylene tanks. And I'm like, fuck, if I blow this charge, we're all going to die. So I grabbed the charge and I just tossed it into the yard and I pulled out a secondary charge, which was a really, it was an interior breaching charge. So very small, like all I need to do is damage this door enough to where it, I can, I'll, I'll be able to boot it in from there. Right. So I put that charge on the door you know, about eight seconds, got it back. It sticks on the door this time and we get to the set point. I go to, I pull a few, pull the safeties. I call over the radio, you know, code word that I'm going to blow the charge. And I look up and there's a guy staring at me and you got to imagine I'm from him. He's about 10, maybe 10 feet away from me. That's a safe blast distance right there. And he's staring at me. I'm staring at him, but I had already called the code word that I'm getting ready to blow the charge. And so everybody else's head is down because this glass is going to come back out on us. Right. And so then nobody saw him except me. And I just stared at him. He stared at me. And, and, you know, all of our training is eyes, hands, feet, eyes, hands, feet, eyes, hands, feet. And as soon as his hands moved, I just made a decision to charge him. And so I covered that 10 feet and probably two steps, got a hold of him and slammed him into the wall. Well, when I started charging him, the other guys must have saw me because they came rolling into me as well. 
So now we're all in this doorway and I was holding the firing device against my chest, trying to protect it because the safeties are off. And that's the last thing I remember is this white light. Boom. So I always tell people I saw the white light and it wasn't God. <laughs> um, it was an explosion. And so the breaching charge went off and that's pretty much the last thing I remember. I don't remember anything else for a while. So I'm laying there. I have no idea how I'm laying, how long I'm laying there. I must've been laying there a while because the next thing I know I heard, I, I, it's on video too. So Justin Leg. Um, grabs me by the night vision, lifts my head, my head flops down. He's like, he's dead. So Justin must have been like number 10 or 11 in the train. So he's pretty far back there. So I've been down for a little bit. And uh, I remember that. And I remember telling myself, you're not dead. I'm like, I'm not dead. I'm not dead. And I remember just being in so much pain. I just wanted to go to sleep. And and I just like, don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep, you know? And I'm just kind of laying there and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a good place right now, you know? And, um, I, you know, I, I literally, I heard a voice and the voice said, you know, Daniel, get on your feet and fucking fight. And I'm like, what? And I heard the voice again. And for years and years, I thought it was God. That was the voice telling me. Right. And, but I remembered, you know, when I, when I went to therapy, I remember my mom used to tell me that all the time. You know, she, my mom was a physical person and, you know, she, she would, she would hit me and, 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 and beat me and, and uh, she would watch me fight kids in the yard too. And, you know, when I get knocked down, she's like, yeah, get on your goddamn feet and fight. Right. And I remember I heard that voice and that, that really kind of brought me out of this place that I was in of this middle, this middle earth place. And the next thing I, I had this vision of my daughter and I was like, I don't want some other shithead raising my daughter. And so I grabbed hold of the radio and I said, you know, man down. And, um, who I'm like, it's me. And where are you at? I'm like, I'm in the doorway. I'm blind. I think my arm is gone. Um, I'm, 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 I'm hurt really bad. And so kind of laid there for a while. And then I, I felt the guys come and get me and they're like, Oh man, I could hear him talking like, Oh my God, he's covered in blood. Like, Oh shit. Like fuck whatever. Right. So I thought my arm was gone, but it actually had been blown out of socket. So it was, it was behind me, you know? So I was you know, all of a sudden they pulled my arm like, Oh, my arm's still there. Right. Well, the blood wasn't me right? The blood, it, the charge actually cut that other guy in half. So he was laying against the charge and the charge went off and, you know, slice cut him right in half. And so all that blood was all over me. So they thought it was me, but you know, I, I got in frag, you know, the door had blown up. So it went all over the glass and stuff is all on my arm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it jacked me up really, really good, man. And so I remember going out to the vehicle and just, I, you know, my, I, I couldn't walk, I just kept falling down. Like, I don't, I, I, what's the matter with me, you know? And, and I was blind too. Like my head flash burned across my eyes and you know, deaf, I was deaf and I just could, I mean, just everything that was good, could go wrong, go wrong. Like I was just, Oh my God, what doesn't hurt right now? And, you know, I got in the vehicle and I remember they came to start cutting my body armor off. I'm like, Whoa, whoa I'm coming with body armor off. Like, Oh, we need to see what's on. I'm like, listen, I'm fine. Give me my gun and point me in the direction I need to be at. You're not cutting this damn body armor off. Cause back then we had no money. Right. So that was my first nice set of body armor. I'm like, you're fucking sure shit. I'm cutting the stuff off me. <laughs> I was more concerned about the gear than I was anything else. And, uh, went back, you know, we finished up that, that, that op and got out of solder city quickly and, uh, drove back to buy up Baghdad international airport and went to the, the cash, which is, you know, like mash the TV show, but basically called the cash and, you know, took all my stuff off me. And I, you know, I had, had a lot of, 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 uh, glass wounds up and down my arm and in my back. And, um, I got to go home. 
so that got me got me to go home for Christmas, and I uh, was home for a month, about a month, about a month and a week recovering. And uh, when it came time to, you know, I felt like I was good. I had to do a physical, and so I drank a lot of vodka and I popped some pills, went to the physical and passed it, and went back to Iraq. Crazy. Well, it's funny with the body armor thing. I've I've had that on a couple of times where we've had an injured police officer. And it's the same thing. Screaming at us! Don't cut off the body armor. It's, it's, don't, don't cut off, don't cut off yeah. my ear, man. Like, it, it takes so long to get it to fit perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned yeah. about you know, that you know you're doing pain pills and vodka with you being so engrossed, you know, with with your uh, your team, and then being taken away from from that tribe, as it were. Did you, you know, retroactively looking back now? Did you? experience any kind of uh you know depression or anything apart from obviously being physically wounded just just kind of being plucked from the men that you you're normally alongside oh it was terrible i mean my wife tells the story better she just like it was the worst christmas ever it was the absolute worst christmas ever because I, I just I, I i just sit there in front of the news watching the news and just drinking and just like i, I had zero desire to be home I, I did not want to be home and i was just like I, I literally I'd lay in the tub and blow bubbles out of my ear because like, my eardrum was punctured, right? <laughs> and as soon as these bubbles stop, I'm out of here. Like as soon as my eye, as soon as I can, as soon as I don't have blurry vision in my right eye, I'm out of here. And you know, and I just, it just, I was just a dick, dude. I was just told I did not want to be there. I liked being overseas. I liked being at war. My boys were there fighting it out while I was gone. The gods are cowie, which you know they got. Excuse me, they got Saddam while I was gone, and uh, we didn't have anything to do with that. But the fact of they were, they were doing big missions while I was gone. I was just like, God, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fucking failure. You know, I should be there with my guys. So yeah, I couldn't get back fast enough. I did not want to be home. Now, what did that look like as far as your own ability though, after suffering, you know, obviously the physical injuries and then, you know, the TBI element too. You know, it, the injuries didn't really suffer. It didn't hurt me, man. I, 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 one thing about all seals, we can all deal with pain because in buds, you're going to be in pain the entire time. You know, guys, guys quit and they're like, Oh, it was just so painful. Well, of course it's, it's no shit. So the pain didn't bother me. It was just to merely just shut the pain out. He, he pops some pills, you know, and put some ice on it and rub some butter on the damn thing and suck it up, man, suck it up. So it hurt, you know, tape wrap ace bandages around myself because my back was broken. Um, suck it up. Just, you know, there's work to be done and pain can wait. Right. That was my attitude towards it. And, the pain really didn't affect me till years later when I just was like, Oh, something's a matter, you know, like my shoulder, what's the matter with my shoulder? Oh, everything's torn. What's the matter with my neck? Oh, you've had a fractured neck. You know, what's the matter with my back? Oh, we, all your discs are ruptured. You know, like, Oh, what's the matter with my hip? Oh, it's been broken. You know, like, so, <laughs> Oh, that must all happen during that explosion. Cause I never had any other injury. Who'd have <laughs> so thought just, the bums could do that to a person? <laughs> yeah. Who'd have thought being, being six inches away from a freaking explosion could do that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so what, so after that, you went back to your team. What, what was the, the road to actually transitioning out, making that decision? So I went back to Mosul, Iraq, and um, I had this really interesting thing happen in Mosul. I had an army uh, criminal investigative guy come request to meet with me. And I was like, hey, you know, what, what's up? He's like, oh, I'm here to investigate you for murder. And I was like, huh? He, and by then, I was like, well, which dude? <laughs> you know, like, I've been here a while, man. <laughs> and uh, he's like, oh, um, I'm here to investigate for murder to this guy in Baghdad, et cetera. And 
I didn't know who he's talking about because by then, you know, we've been there for, you know, at that point, probably five months. So we, we, we've been, we've, we've done some stuff, you know? So, you know, moving forward, I, you know, I came home. Um, and again, they pulled me aside like, Hey, we want to talk to you about this, this guy. And I'm like, I don't know who you're talking about. Well, what had happened is we had a guy in the old, the platoon that I was in in Baghdad. When I left, this guy got caught stealing and his nickname was Klepto. His real name is Jeff Hopper, total scumbag. He, when this war started, we were short on seals. So they brought guys back into the teams who had been kicked out and they brought him back in. He stole another guy named Ryan Dooley's body armor. And my buddy, Jason Torrey, caught him wearing it. So this whole, they had searched for this body armor three different times, couldn't find it. And Jason noticed this guy was wearing Dooley's body armor. It's just three little cigarette burns. And so they boarded him right there in country and sent him home. Well, during that process, him waiting to get captain's mass to basically kicked out of the SEAL teams, Abu Ghraib happened. And he saw the photo of the guy that I had gotten this massive hand-to-hand fight with and who had, who had died. He saw that photo and was like, there's my golden ticket to not get kicked out of the SEAL teams. And so he requested what's called Commodore's Mass, which is one step above Captain's Mass, and basically told the Commodore, if you kick me out, I'm going to tell everybody what we did at Abu Ghraib. Well, the Commodore did the right thing. He basically said, hey, we have to investigate this. And at this point, if you imagine Army CID and Navy Naval Criminal Investigative Service, they're fucking bored out of their mind. They have nothing to do but go catch an occasional pot smoker in the military. So they jumped on this thing, hook, line, and sinker. Nobody ever thought to, one, who's accusing all these guys of this? A lying thief, right? Nobody nobody just paused there. They decided hook, line, and sinker were going after all these SEALs. So 14 of us got investigated and charged. I got charged with 27 counts of murder, manslaughter, you name it, the, the gambit of, of charges. And the way they treated me, I was guilty. Basically, you're guilty. You're guilty until proven innocent. I'm like, hold. First off, I've never been to Abu Ghraib. Yeah, nope, nope. We don't believe you. Nope. You you were you were there for the interrogation. You killed this guy. Whatever. I'm like, I've never been to Abu Ghraib. There's a sign-in log. So I go through four investigations. Three of them, I'm cleared. All three, I'm cleared. I go all the way. It's called a, a in, inquiring officers board. So it's essentially a trial, kind of like a preacher, like a, I guess you'd call it a grand jury, right? But in the military, it's called an investigating officer board. The investigating officer writes this report that just rips apart NCIS, rips apart the entire investigation, clears me of every single charge except for two, posing an unauthorized photo and using harsh verbal language of war to an enemy detainee, right? Everything else, no, no evidence, worst investigation ever, et cetera, et cetera find no evidence that, you know, Petty Officer Cerullo was ever at Abu Ghraib. I'm like, I told you, I've never been there. Well, Admiral McGuire, who's the Admiral in charge of Naval Special Warfare, writes an article in the San Diego Tribune, which is how I found out about it. I agree with the investigating officer that Petty Officer Cerullo should be cleared of all charges. However, I've decided to court-martial him anyway. So now I go to the full court-martial. Again, I'm like, I, my story is not going to change, but this time they don't really give a shit about me. They want me to turncoat and basically become their star witness to testify against my two lieutenants. And I'm like, my two tenants were the guys who kept us in check, very honorable men. And so, you know, we're going to give you 12 years if you don't confess. And, you know, I'm like, one, I'll never going to confess and I'll just leave. I had literally had an exit plan out of the country the whole gig. I was gone, man. So then a couple of weeks later, I come back. Okay, we'll give you two years 
if you confess and like, you know, decide to testify against your lieutenants. And by then, when they said two years, I won. I was like, two years? I was just in Iraq for eight months. Like, <laughs> I just get jacked, bro. I'll just go to the gym and get being put, lock me up. I'll just get big, you know? Like, I'm not ever going to rat on, you know, one, there's nothing to rat on, but I'm never going to freaking testify against my friends for two years. So I was like, yeah, no, no way. They came back about two weeks later again. Okay, we'll give you six months. <laughs> I'm just like, I've won. I, I've won. So there's no way I'm ever going to testify against my buddies. So literally, I'm standing outside the door of my court martial, ready to walk in to go, you know, start the trial. They pull me in this room. They're like, we'll give you immunity if you just say your lieutenants were there, which, of course, I knew the real story. They want to get me on the witness stand and see if they can get me to, to mind fuck me. Right. And so, OK, I'll, t- I'll take your I'll take your immunity, you know, and. You know, all my charges are dropped. I go, I plead guilty to the two things I admitted to. I was in an unauthorized photo, according to somebody. I don't know who says it's authorized or not, because the damn photo was sitting on the quarter deck of NATO Special Warfare Group 1 for like four months, right? It was framed in in a photo, (laughs) right? So apparently that was unauthorized, but whatever. Um, And then using harsh verbal language to an enemy detainee of war, I'm like, well, yeah, I'm guilty. (laughs) Several, how many, 300 counts, whatever, I don't know how many counts, right? So, you know, I took my lumps and uh, I I basically, you know, got got slapped on the wrist and whatever. And then I went to the, you know, to the trial and I had to testify against Lieutenant Ledford. And during the trial, they're like, you know, tell us what he ordered you to do, whatever. I'm like, he never ordered us to do anything. He was the guy who kept us in check the entire time. And he ended up getting found guilty, not guilty of, of every single charge. And uh, I got done with all that. And I still wanted to stay in the military, right? I still was like, I want to stay in the military. So I, I was actually scheduled to deploy to Ramadi eight days later. And all I want to do is if I get there eight days, I'll, I'll, I'll re-enlist over there, get all this money back that I'd spend on this attorney, which is my wife's money. She was a really good realtor. And I'll be, I'll be back in the game, right? Well, they come to me and they're like, you can't extend. You have to re-enlist today. Like my enlistment was up in four days. And I'm like, but I'll be in Ramadi in eight days. I just want to get my money. Nope, you have to re-enlist today. So then my command tries to operationally hold me because like an idiot, I said, I want to stay in. I'm like, I'm not getting out, right? Well, they won't operationally hold me. So then my command tries to buy me a ticket right away to get me back to Ramadi. Just get me there tomorrow. And so I go home. My wife has no idea any of this is going on. I go home and I'm just all dejected. She's like, what's the matter? I'm like, they want me to re-enlist like right now. And she's like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm probably just going to go in and like get by my own plane ticket and fly to Ramadi and re-enlist over there. And she looks at me. She's like, are you stupid? I'm like, you know, and my wife is very quiet. She does not talk. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? She's like, Danny, they just try to charge you with murder for, mur- for killing a guy who blew up the American Red Cross in Baghdad, which killed 200 civilians, and they're trying to charge you with murder for it. And you want to stay in and work with these people? She goes, this wasn't any, this was your own command that did this. And I remember just kind of sitting back and it was the first time ever I was like, holy shit, you're right. And it was the first time I was like, she's like, they treated you like you were a fucking criminal the entire time. You were guilty until you, and like, she's like, you proved you were innocent three times and they still took you to court martial. And I'm just like, fuck. And I really sat and I thought about it. And so I called one of my buddies who um, did you know government contracting. And I just said, Hey man, what are the chances of me getting hired? And what would you pay? He's like, dude, I'll hire you tomorrow and I'll pay you 30,000 a month. 
And so I went to work and I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> it was a hard and decision. I, I thought, oh, fuck you. Yeah, I, I quit. Right? <laughs> and I, I knew I was going to get a hundred percent disability because you know, my injury. And, uh, I got out and that's what I did. I went contracting overseas and I was, you know, back to chasing bad guys again, but as a civilian working for a government agency. And, um, it was the start of my transition out, but yeah, that's, that was the end of my career and it, it hurt. It was, it was hard to walk away. I, I definitely felt like a quitter and I, it took me a long time to forgive myself for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that must have been extremely hard. I, I can relate in a much, much lesser <laughs> degree of, of the story that you just told, but you know, you, you sign up because you want to do that specific job, but your mission as a SEAL, as a firefighter, whatever it is, is a separate journey than an organization that you work for. And I've seen this countless times. I've had it definitely myself where I've been thrown under the bus by my organization for something I did, you know, again, did not do in any way, shape or form. One person made a claim and it was, I was guilty until proven innocent. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a horrific thing, but I think that's just it is understanding that you you love that mission you love that you know that um calling that purpose but it's not everything in your life and once that ceases to become the pure um you know pure element that it was when you were early in your career and, and for me with my career too and, and that those politics come in uh become involved it's it's a, a bitter pill to swallow but there's Usually a time where you're like, all right, I, I guess that was as much I could do under that organization, but things have changed and I need to find a new chapter now. Yeah, you know, and, and that's 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 what happened. And when I started looking, like you were, now that I look back on it, it was like I was at a point where they were already telling me after this deployment, you got to go to shore duty, you got to go become an instructor again. This I'm like, why I don't want to be an instructor. I don't want to go teach. I want to go and chase bad guys. And I'd already started exploring, you know, other government jobs and because I, I didn't want, I don't want to be, an, I don't want to be, an, I'm an administrator now, but back, you know, I'm like, I'm 30 years old. I want to chase bad guys, man. I don't want to fucking type, you know, <laughs> and which, which I've always had a big problem with guys who come in the military and like, oh, what do you think of this admiral? Or I'm like, I don't, I don't think of them. Like, what did they come in the teams for? You come in the teams to be a typist or an operator. You want to be a typist, come, come sit in the chair that I sit in now, run a company a massive company. That's what typists do, you know? So, um, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was a bitter pill to swallow, but I'm glad I did it. It's the best thing that I ever did because I see my friends now. And I mean, now they're my patients. Sometimes they're tired, they're broken, they're beat up. Most of them are divorced. And, um, that's not my case, you know? Yeah. Well, and what we're about to talk about, I love the phrase that, that, you know, the special operations special forces uses as the, the force multiplier. And that's kind of how I feel now with, you know, this thing that I'm doing at the moment, you know, is, is trying to, trying to help the men and women that are out there serving. So, you know, by, by doing that, radiating out and helping numerous careers. And I think that's, you know, what I'm seeing now with, with the, um, the course that you're on at the moment is, you know, how many people are you affecting by healing each one of these operators that walks through your door? Not enough. Not enough. You know, I mean, I, it, it, I'm a mission oriented person, obviously, and this is just a mission for me. Not, I shouldn't say that wrong. It is not just a mission. It is the mission for me. Um, and it gives me this, this feeling that I'm, I'm, I'm doing something again, I'm doing something important. And to me, it's the most important thing. You know, my buddy, Mike, Mike uh, Ritland, he, he rescues dogs, right? And so all the dogs that go overseas, we rescue them. 
and they after they serve the service of the SEAL teams, and they they find, try to find them homes that live on Mike's ranch. And I sit there, I'm like, what the fuck are we doing for the SEALs? You know, like guys, I know guys, I know the SEAL teams on so many occasions are basically like, let's, see, let's just get this guy to retirement, and then we, at least we got him that. And I'm like, okay, getting a guy to retirement who's fucking losing his goddamn mind, who's drinks two bottles of tequila a day. You got him his pension, and now he's not your problem. That's your way of solving the problem, and you consider that success. You know, I, I, I've seen they've taken away, away more senior guys' tridents in the last five years than in history of the SEAL teams. And and like I sit there and I go, you, why would you presume to not think these guys have mental and addictive issues? For the last twenty years, they've been at combat almost continually. And you did nothing to decompress them. You, you did nothing. Now you're now starting to do it after guys are putting guns in their mouths or just laying on the ground having heart attacks. But our job is to turn them back and prepare them to go back into society and to address the issues that come along with prolonged stress. You know, the drinking, the not sleeping, the rage, the hatred, the anger the sense of of self-deprivation the, the the not knowing who you are you know all those issues need to be addressed and they're like wow but we have this massive mba program at usc great and guys go with their mba and they get jobs and two years later they're my patients because of course they have a master's degree of course they have success in the business world quickly and then it all starts come unraveling because they still weren't prepared to go into that environment, right? Because you go from, as a firefighter, right? You work with six to eight guys. You're tight, man. You're same shift, years. Same the SEAL teams. You're tight. Same same group of guys. And then one day, you are no longer part of that. And your phone does not ring. You are literally one day in an instant, it is just over. It's the same thing as an NFL football player. Who are you when the crowd stops cheering? NFL, you get to go become a sports caster and you get to sign autographs, you get to all this stuff, right? People, they watch you on TV, they buy your jerseys. A SEAL, a firefighter, a police officer, you're nobody gives a shit about you. You're just an old man sitting on your couch. And those are the guys who are suffering the most. And those are the guys who I focus on trying to let them know, one, you're not alone. Two, you're not the first. Three, this is normal. And four, we can help you. Absolutely. And the thing that a lot of people don't realize is in the military, there is the VA. At least there's some sort of, you know, a medical system that you're in. When a policeman or a firefighter retires or a correctional officer, there's nothing. No insurance, nothing. You know, bye-bye. So it is. We're just literally throwing our men and women off the end of a pier. Yeah. You know, and and the thing is, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm, 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 I'm against people drinking, right? I don't drink anymore, obviously. But what it is, is drinking as a culture as a young man in the, in the jobs that we do. As a police officer, firefighter, paramedic, drinking as a culture. We get done with a hard day of work, we drink. Construction, all those things. The problem is, is that when we get in our 40s and 50s, we still drink the same way. The issue is when you're in your 20s, you're drinking and you're metabolizing. Drinking and metabolizing because you're moving, you're working, you're working, you're metabolizing, right? Well, now you're 40 and 50. In the SEAL teams, you have a great pension. Right, most guys make about seventy grand a year if they're one hundred percent disabled. Then there's an additional money on top of that. And you have guys who are master chiefs, thirty years, they're making they're making a lot of money by sitting on the couch and they're drinking the same way. 
And next thing you know, they're not having issues. They just die. They literally lay on their couch and they just die. They're having, we have so many guys with heart attacks, so many guys with cancer, and these are highly fit people. Now, if the SEAL teams, this very small community are having it, then of course the police officers, of course firefighters, of course paramedics are having the same issue at probably a much higher rate. But everybody's focused on suicide, right? We're all focused on suicide. What about unintentional suicide? Because that's what it, that's what that is. If you're drinking the same way you do as a 50-year-old man as you do in your the same way you drink when you're 20s and your 50s, you're killing yourself. You're unintentionally killing yourself. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Now I know that you, you know, you found yourself um, drinking, you know, after you transitioned out too. So you mentioned about that time, you know, when you were injured, and even that those few weeks that you noticed you kind of leaning into alcohol. What about when you were permanently taken from the tribe, whether it was working in the contracting or, or after that? Did did that start to spiral down even more? There was there was some iterations of it, but you know, because I I I had a wife and kids, and you know. It was very hard. My, my issue was always Saturdays, right? So I coached football on Saturday mornings and I coached football on Friday nights. So I didn't, I would drink after the end of the football game on Friday night and then have to get up at like seven in the morning to go coach football. So you can't drink too much. But Saturday night, man, I tied on. But during the week, I didn't drink, right? Because I just, hey, I had work. I, you know, I had maybe have one or two, but I needed to get up early and, and work out. And once I got into the CrossFit thing, I really wanted to be super fit. So, you know, I wanted to win the CrossFit games. I wanted to do all these things. So I was able to control drinking. It would go in these phases, you know, like some, a friend of mine would die. I would drink then climb myself out of the pit. And that's the way it went for a long time. And then there'd be a period where I, you know, I'd, I'd drink a little too much for a little too long, but then I'm like, Oh, no more of that shit. Right. And I always in my brain had a handle on it, which I, you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. So it's just cut and dry. Right. Um, but then when my wife got sick, I, I just couldn't do it, man. I, I could not sit there and watch her die, you know, and, and, and thank God, you know, she lived God, God was good to me. And, and cause I think, you know, had my wife died, I was, I would kill myself. That's, that's just, a, I, I have no reason to live. Right. And Watching her for two and a half years battle cancer, I I got to a point where I made peace with my drinking because I was not an alcoholic because I did only drink on weekends. And then I started drinking on Thursday and it's okay, but I only drink on from Thursday to Sunday. So I'm not an alcoholic. And then it was Wednesday and then it was Tuesday. And the next thing you know, I couldn't stop drinking on Mondays. All right. And my hands were shaking and I, I was just a fucking mess. And when you get to that point of drinking, and I'm talking literally two bottles of tequila a day, a bottle of wine, some beers every day, I, I lost the ability to read and write. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't think anymore. I, I just, I was just, I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. I just drank all the time. The only time I was sober when I was at work. And luckily I was sober when I was at work, but I started showing up late. Guys could tell I'd been drinking all night long. You know, they could smell it. And, um, yeah, I was, I was quickly losing everything that I had worked for. And by then I was working for, you know, the, probably the third richest company in the world. I had a significant position and, um, yeah, I was in a bad place, man. I was in a bad place. So how did you find your way out of that? So purely by accident, um, I had always been helping other guys get help 
um, in my way of getting help was like, you never talk about the PTSD, right? You just talk about TBI. Oh, let me, let's try alpha stem. And I research alpha stem and I would try it. Oh, this helps with my TBI, right? It gives me like an hour of relief. And, you know, if you do the, like all these different therapies, there's so many bullshit therapies out there. I was, I, I experimented on it, but I never, ever said I was, I was had a drinking problem. I just like, Oh, you, you can fucking try this. Then you can drink more. Right. So I was asked to research the maps program, MAPS program and multi, multi, multi something psychedelic studies. And I, I wrote the report. My wife actually wrote it because I couldn't even read or write at that time. And my boss, Grant Dawson, asked me to do it. And I think he knew I had a problem, was probably subliminally saying, you, you should probably do this. But he never came out and said that, right? And so my wife wrote the report. I turned it in. And uh, I said, it has efficacy for people, not me, because I don't have a problem, right? And so then they came and did a, they came and did a, um, a presentation. And you know the guys came in, two were SEALs. One was the doctor, and I, I pretty much just gaffed him off. I'm like, just fucking hurry up. Let's get this shit over with, right? And then when Marcus Capone's wife talked, I heard my wife's voice. And the things I heard were not good. She talked about what Marcus was like before he went and, and did the program, how verbally and mentally abusive he was, how cold and full of hate and anger and rage, how sexually, how rough he was, just how it's everything and everything she said, I heard, you know, just how he just was not a good human being. And for some reason, I just, I, I just hated myself in that moment. I really just was disgusted with myself. And so we got done and I pulled Dr. Planko aside and I said, Dr. Planko, I'm, I have a problem. I said, I, I'm a fucking alcoholic and I, and I, I just want to die. I don't want to live. And I'm, I'm I, I don't want to kill myself. I just, but I don't want to live. He's like, I know. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, he goes, I can smell the alcohol on you. I can look at your face. You're bloated. He's like, all of you are like this. I'm like, what do you mean? All of us. He's like, all of you. He's like, Dan, all I treat is seals. And I'm really, I had no idea. I'm just like, really? He's like, that's all I treat. And I decided to enroll in the program. And so you'd go through a month of counseling, which I basically gaffed off. I told, literally told the counselor, go pack sand. Just leave me the fuck alone. I don't even know why they even let me be part of the program. When it came time to go down to therapy, by then I was kind of in, I don't give a fuck mode. So I took my mask and my fins and I literally was like, I'm just going to go down to Mexico and drink some margaritas and fucking we'll, we'll try this out. You know? And I literally took my mask and fins. I'm like, I'll go spear fishing while I'm there and I'll make a party of it. Fuck, I don't give a shit, you know? And because um, I did none of the reading. I didn't read anything about what, the, what I was supposed to be reading about the program. And I went down there and, you know, I had never taken drugs, right? I just, I, that was not my gig. I drank booze and when I was in pain, I popped pills. And I'd really gotten my way away from pills because, you know, pills didn't really do anything to me except maybe sleep and I couldn't poop, right? So I didn't like pills. And by the time I was getting ready to go to Mexico, I had started smoking weed and, my justification for smoking weed is, well, if I get high, I don't have to drink as much booze, right? Because in your brain, it makes sense. Well, by the end of it, I was smoking weed and drinking just as much booze as I normally drink. So whatever. And um, I went down there and they, they talked to us about the, the medication called Ibogaine. 
and about what you experience. And they kept, you know, it's very, they're very hippie about it. You know, you take a journey and they're rolling sage around here. And I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? You know, like <laughs> this fucking hippie shit, you know, just give me the goddamn pills. Right. And so I took the pills and holy shit, <laughs> uh, you know, I'd never hallucinated ever in my life. And so to all of a sudden be on a rocket ship to a place of somewhere in time <laughs> was crazy um, to say the least. And you sit there, you have this blindfold on, you have these big, you know, Bose earphones on and it, you pull the blindfold off and it all stops. So you're not high. You're just hallucinating. And it started showing me, it started showing me stories. And so I was expecting all my PTSD be, be from the war. Like I said, I thought, you know, everybody's like, Oh yeah, PTSD. Cause you went to war. I'm like, Oh, I, I guess. I always tell people I got PTSD from not being at war. I know that, but all the stuff that came out had nothing to do with the war. It was all from my childhood. And I, and I had just largely forgotten about all of it. And I had forgotten about, you know, my mom and the way she had dealt with us. And I had forgotten about how she nearly killed me and my brother and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of those things. And, um, all of it came out. And I was just like crying, like just so sad, like, fuck, man, that was just, that's fucked up, you know, like for your mom to do all that shit to you. And I would get into these really, really bad places because it's hours, man, it's hours. And I would just want to stop and all of a sudden this purple rain would fall and just wash it away. And I was just like, oh, thank you. I needed that. Right. And then on to the next one, on to the next one, on to the next one, hundreds of these movies just appearing in front of me and this purple rain would fall. And I kept telling myself, just God damn, just show me something good. Just show me something good. Just show me my wife, show me my kids, you know, and it wouldn't show me those, those images. It just kept showing me really, really bad stuff. And this purple rain, it, it took me hours and hours. And finally I was like, the purple rain is my wife. And it like had this epiphany, like, holy fuck, man. Like this is the only person who's ever given a fuck about me in my entire life. And I have treated her like absolute dog shit. Like I've just treated this woman so badly and she just stays. And right before I had gone to therapy, we were not, we were separated. Right. And I, you know, I was just, I asked her, I was very like, well, how am I like, what am, what am I like? Right. Cause I didn't know. Right. Amber Capone's message to me was so powerful. I'm like, what am I like? And she's like, I hate you. She's like, I fucking hate you. If it wasn't for these kids, I would divorce you. You know, and, and I remembered that and I'm just like, God damn, I, I have to do everything in my power to get this, to, to earn this woman's love back. I mean, and, and I realized that everything that I had gone through, you know, they, you talk about that saying, the Bible saying where when, when you only see one piece of footprints in the sand, it's because God was carrying you, right? Well, it wasn't God carrying me. It was my wife. She'd been through everything. She'd been through all the funerals. She'd been through the trial. She'd been through the business success and the failure. She, She'd been through everything that I had put her through for, you know, 15 years at that point. And while she was dying, she was such a strong Spartan woman. And I was such a weak coward. I was such a pathetic coward while she was sick and goddamn, I get emotional. And just, I just realized how I realized how much God loved me because he gave me this woman. And that was the challenge. When you can finally understand what's in front of you, 
then you can forget, then you can be a good man. And up to that point, I literally just lived this lie. I always tell people I was a good man. I was a good husband, good father. And I wasn't, man. I wasn't. I, I tried to be. And I went through that experience all night long. It was incredibly rough. The next day when I, when, you know, in the morning, the sun came up and I watched the sun come up and I was very in this, um, why me stage? Like, why did all this shit have to happen to this little boy? Like, why, why did, why did my, you know, why did your mom treat you that way? Why did she burn you? And why did she beat you? And why did she, you know, fucking, you know, freeze you and starve you? And, you know, and it did all this shit. Right. And so I was very like, boo hooey, boo hooey. And then a couple hours later, I got, I was just like, man, gives a fuck. I got to fuck that. I go, I'm not fucking feeling sorry for myself anymore. And I went through that for a couple hours and I went into, it is what it is, man. It is what it is. Just it's in the past. Move on. You can't change it. It it is what it is. And then I went to the next stage, which was complete um, uh, gratification. Like, thank you. Thank you for all of that, for doing all of that to me, because I am who I am because of it. I love my children. I've never spanked them ever. I do love my wife. I've, I've done everything I can to cherish her and give her everything that I can. I didn't do the best at it. I, I'm, I love my friends, right? I, I'm, I'm a Navy SEAL because there was nothing you could do to me in buds that I had never been done before. You couldn't beat me, torture me, starve me fucking sleep. None of it mattered. And I was very just grateful. Like, thank you for all of it. And then the final stage that night was forgiveness. I forgave everybody. I forgave my mom. And I had this powerful moment where this image of my mom was in front of me. And we we talked, the image never talked to me. I talked to her and I understood it. You were just a little girl when you started having us. You were beaten and raped by every man who ever encountered you. They fucking tortured you. You did the best you could. And your only outlet was to beat the men that you could beat, which was me and my brother. And you didn't do it because you found pride in it. When we angered you, you had all this pent up rage and hatred. And you just, we were the ones that, that were the outlet for you to do it. And I forgave her. I completely forgave her. And I, (laughs) <laughs> you don't want to cry. <laughs> um, I, I made peace with it. And I just said, that mom is dead. The mom that I have from now on is the mom that I, that I want. And, you know, she had a lot of mental issues at the end. And, you know, we'd only have about five minute long conversations. She'd get a little crazy and I'd, okay, I got to talk to you later, but I just forgave her. And I forgave everybody in my life that had ever done who I felt was everything wrong. And I got past that point of forgiveness and I went in the mirror and I spent hours in the mirror, looking in the mirror going, it's all your fault. Nobody ever fucked you over. Nobody ever wronged you. You let them fuck you over. You let them wrong you. You need to take the blame for this shit. And over the course of a few hours, I literally sat there and were like, yeah, man, Everything came down to every mistake you've ever done. You've been drinking or the night, the the day after you could have been so many other things, but your mouth, your ego, mostly my ego are the defining things that derailed things in your life. And I sat there and I said, I am going to change everything. 
I'm going to change everything in my life. I am going to go out of my way to be a completely different person and live a life of a mindset that matters. And every day since then, I wake up the same way to a routine. And that routine is absolute. You know, I, I lay in bed, I wake up, I don't use an alarm clock. And I listen to what's called monks chanting on Spotify. I roll over and I hold my wife. I get out of bed. I go, you know, go to the restroom. I read the paper and I take a shower. I go through this whole routine. I iron my clothes in the morning and I, the, the clothes that I wear are how I feel. So I used to wear nothing but black clothes and gray clothes. All my clothes are bright now. Um, it's the way I want to feel. And I do all this routine. I sit quietly out of my deck and I, I drink my tea and I just kind of just, this is how your day is going to be. Move slow, move slow. I drive to work. I set my freaking, my uh, cruise control at 70. Everybody else is flying by me. I don't care. I'm in no rush. I get to work and I sit in the parking lot and I tell myself two things every single day. My problems are not their problems. My problems are not their problems. Make seven people smile. You know, and I come into work and my entire focus is how do I make their jobs easier? How do I make, how do I take these people who have committed their lives to saving lives? How do I make their job easier? And it's given me this focus now of all I want to do is help people. I don't ever want to harm another human being again. I, I don't want to, I'm not a seal anymore. I'm, I, that's, that was a chap. That was a book. That book is under the bed. I'm Dan. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm, I treat addicts for a living. I, and I, I raise money for charity for my brothers and their families. And I just want to live a very quiet life. And I then got the opportunity to go to stem cell therapy, which addressed the TBI. And, you know, for a long time, I thought PTSD and TBI were the same thing. I think a lot of people do, right? And when I did the stem cell therapy, the intravenous stem cell therapy in the Bahamas, I actually felt my body repairing. I felt my brain repairing. I felt my joints repairing. And then I did the hyperbaric chamber therapy. I felt my body getting better again. I then really focused on my hormones and the VA will give you testosterone, but they won't give you estrogen blockers. Well, estrogen blockers, when you take testosterone, your estrogen spikes, which causes all these emotions. I got that in balance and all of a sudden I'm like, man, I'm not so emotional anymore. And then I started looking at my blood work of vitamin D and magnesium and you know, fish oils. Just how do I make my how do I make myself healthier? And then I changed my diet. You know, I, I really adopted into the a, a paleolithic diet, not a paleo diet, it's very different, right? A paleolithic diet is, you know, people say eat a lot of you know, hunters gather, eat a lot of fruits, nuts and seeds, et cetera, and, and, and meat. Well, paleolithic man ate meat maybe once or twice a week. If he got lucky and it died in front of him or he happened to catch it <laughs> or he happened to spear the damn thing. And I, all I ever ate was red meat. I, I refused to eat vegetables. Well, now I don't eat red meat at all. I eat nothing but vegetables, salads, whatever. And um, I eat fish every now and then. I eat some chicken every now and then. And I'm, I'm one of those guys who if I look at a cheeseburger, I gain weight. And for the first time ever, I'm now losing weight without really trying. I've fallen in love with working out again. Like I wake up at four in the morning for no reason. And I, I wake up and I'm like, I want to work out. And I used to make fun of Jocko all the time. He's like, oh, you know, uh, discipline equals freedom. I'm like, I'm fucking undisciplined. My ass ain't getting up at four. 
and now I get it before I work out and I'm like, I'm not a disciplined person. I just, I like the fact that I'm not in pain anymore. And I owe that to the stem cells in the hyperbaric chamber, obviously. And obviously they're not drinking, I'm not poisoning my body anymore. And, uh, it's just been this glorious transformation for me from going to this, the darkest pit of hell to now like having the sunshine of me and, and kind of just like, fuck man, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful all that stuff happened because it taught me so much. You know, I, I learned how much an ego can destroy you and I battle, I still battle that. Right. I still have to every now and then go, Whoa, whoa dude, don't do that. It, it isn't you. It's us. You know, and I, everything I'm always saying, us, me, us, 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 and I'm, and I, I want everybody to have the credit, and I don't want, I don't want any credit for anything. I just want to help people, you know, and I want, I want my wife to have everything that I can give her, and she doesn't want a thing, right? She's, she's just like me. She's a poor kid from the ghetto, but I want her to. He almost died. And, and now I, I, I make enough of a living to where I can, I can buy you, you know, a couch, not from Goodwill, you know, and it, it, it makes me really, I'm, I'm in a really, really happy place right now. For the first time, I understand what happiness and peace and love is, you know. Well, firstly, thank you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that, you know, it, it upset you. But I mean, it's it's these powerful stories that people need to hear. You know, it's not the everything was great. I've never had a problem but I'm going to help you, you know, that's complete bullshit. So, you know, hear, hearing that and hearing, you know, that, that it took that Ibogaine uh, experience to basically stop what was going to be reoccurring trauma, the trauma and the pain that your mom felt that was then passed on to you. So, um, you know, I think one of the, the thing that really struck me of, of some of the elements of, of what you just told us was that you had to go out the country for Ibogaine. You had to go out the country for stem cells. And some of these things that are so powerful, some of this plant medicine and, you know, other technology that is truly helping people. And you're one of numerous seals that I know that had to go outside the U.S. to have psilocybin or Ibogaine or whatever, you know, uh, um, substance they use that literally had these within days transformational effects. And so, you know, when you mentioned MAPS, I had Dr. Ben Sessa, who's, who's part of the MAPS organization, but he's in the UK, you know, talking about the MDMA counseling that they do. And, and it, it just, it, it infuriates me that some of these most powerful treatments that really are changing lives are still within that demonized anti-drug philosophy. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, there's obviously people like, oh, you had 20 years of therapy and in four days. You're, you're right. And that's the point. I, I could probably be at the same exact place right now when I'm 60 as I am today after 20 years of therapy. It's going to take me, you know, two or three months just to get comfortable with a counselor to finally maybe open up a little bit. It's going to take me years to actually take be self-accountable. And Ibogaine was a baseball bat to the side of my head. It's just a fucking baseball bat because I would have never came to counseling in a million years. And I understand, you know, for us in our community, it's a sign of weakness, right? And that's my message always to guys is I don't hide my story, right? I, I don't hide it. I want guys to know about it because there is, it, you're not weak by seeking help because your alternative is death. And this is the message I want everybody to hear is by the time I decided to go to therapy, I was sleeping about 45 minutes a night. And that was all sleep, not just REM, that was sleep. And what I learned during that process is that I could feel myself dying. And I had read a report that when you're under two hours of sleep a night consistently, you're within one year of your death. And I, I started feeling my heart. I started, I could feel things not working. 
and I started losing the will to live, which is dangerous. And if you're at that point, you're going to die if you don't make a change. And the reality is this, there was no way I was going to stop drinking on my own. That's the key about Ibogaine. I did not go to Mexico to stop drinking. I didn't go to Mexico to stop drinking. I went to Mexico to try it out. And I remember coming back on Monday, the guy knocking on the window and he's like, senor, tequila, tequila. And that's the vitals. My shit, man. I drink tequila, right? Double Don Julio on the rocks with a thick slice of orange. And I looked at him. I'm like, I don't drink. And I remember I sat back in my chair. I'm like, whoa, what the fuck did you just say? (laughs) And I I, I literally was like, I don't drink. And I, I don't even, I don't even think about it. And it's funny now is now I'm going on year three, right? I can be in a bar, people drinking around me and the smell of alcohol disgusts me. I have no desire. I can stare at alcohol, you know, and guys to go to rehab and they're like, I'm clean. They're just shaking. Right. I don't have a thought of alcohol. It's just gone. Like I didn't quit drinking. It just disappeared. It's just gone. It doesn't exist. And that's what Ibogaine did for me. It reset my brain. I was able to deal with trauma that I didn't even know existed. I was able to understand. They tell you what they tell you to go down there with your questions. I had no, I thought I knew all the answers. I came back from there with a deep understanding of myself. Why have I always been in love with older women? I just wanted a mom. Why do did I hate men so badly? Because every man in my life either beat me or beat my mom. Why was I so close to my sealed brothers? Because my brother was taken away from me at a young age. Why, why was Bud so easy for me? Why was the SEAL team so easy? Because I had experienced so much worse prior to that. All these questions I didn't even know to ask or answer. Why did I hate dogs? I didn't even know why I didn't even know why I hated dogs. Didn't know it was a question. And I had all these answers thrown at me. And I was like, oh my God, I fucking get it. I get it. And um, I came back and I started telling other guys about what had happened. And next thing you know, I started treating other guys. And um, I literally got overwhelmed with the amount of guys I was trying to help, which led me here to American Addiction Centers to to basically call Michael Cartwright and say, there's just too many guys. Like, I, I can't, I don't have enough, I don't have enough resources. And he's like, well, thousands, I got 2000 beds. We just don't treat veterans. I'm like, well, I got veterans. And we came here and, you know, got, got contracts in place and started helping veterans. And obviously as a, as an American company, we can't do Ibogaine, right? But we are trying to partner with organizations that do that organization has a patient. Well, the, Ibogaine doesn't fix you. Ibogaine gives you a tool to start being fixed. We then take those patients back and say, now we're going to give you the tools, 10 days of therapy, 20 days, 30 days, whatever veterans, some veterans, some cases, 120 days of therapy. And, you know, it it shouldn't cost the veteran a penny. And that's been my entire goal. And I've been successful in that goal. And now I'm trying to get stem cell therapy, which Mississippi has the right to try act. So we have a hospital in Mississippi. I'm trying to get licensed or form a partnership in Mississippi so that my veterans, first responders, whomever go, they're clean. We give them the tools to survive, get their bodies fixed, and continue this process and, and, and do so by raising enough money and getting enough contracts in place so that guys like us shouldn't have to pay a penny for the treatment because we've earned the right to get treated. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely incredible. You, you touched on something a minute ago about um, you know barely sleeping. I had um, you know, a host of, of sleep medicine experts. So one of them is Kurt Parsley, a fellow SEAL. And um, you know he talks about Ambien stopping 
you know, true sleep. He talks about alcohol stopping true sleep. So what effects do you, do you see, um, with sleep deprivation in the SEAL community contributing to some of the, the depression and addiction? It's everything. It's everything. So you got to remember your body does not heal unless you sleep. Your body, your brain will not relax unless you sleep. And so when you do a brain scan of a Navy SEAL, the front of the brain is completely black. It's devoid of emotion. It's not processing. It's either it's either happy, it's sad, it's angry, it's not angry. There's no middle ground. The back of the brain is bright red. It's highly agitated. It's always in a heightened sense of awareness. So that helps you get through your career, but it never turns off. So when it never turns off, you never relax. You never relax. You don't sleep. So you want to get some sleep, so you take, have some drinks at night. You smoke a little weed. You take some pills. Next thing you know, you're taking a pill to sleep. You're taking a pill to wake up, right? I took pills to sleep. Then I took pills to work. Then I took other pills to relax. And your brain never gets a break. And next thing you know, you stop sleeping. Your cortisol levels are going crazy. Your hormones are going crazy. They're, they're, they're decreasing. You have no energy. You're, you're gaining weight. You're not happy. You're moody. You're crabby. And it is all a thousand percent sleep related. And then the worst thing for us is our circadian rhythm. Guys don't understand that by putting simply putting a blue light blocker on your phone and wearing blue light blocking glasses, you can actually control your to a better part control your circadian rhythm. And if your circadian rhythm is off at nighttime, you look at your phone for one minute, you've taken away an hour of sleep. You know, and sleep is everything. Sleep is everything. Yeah, well, it's something I talk about a lot because, as you know, you know, law enforcement, fire, you know, the, there's there's that constant circadian rhythm disruption, and and you know, law enforcement in the medical profession and prisons, they they often have a twelve that rotates. In fire, we have twenty fours, um, you know, and I think the twenty four has a place in the fire service. I do. I think the way that our day unfolds, a twenty four is good, but the problem is they work on on, on average fifty six hours a week. So you're taking these men and women whose lives, you know, other people's lives are in their hands, their own lives, their crew's lives are in their hands, and you're working them far greater than than the average person in the workforce. And my, the, one of the things I'm trying to advocate for is instead of the 2448, making a 2472 the standard, that would be a 42-hour work week, but give them an additional 24 hours to try and get as close to reset before they go back on shift again. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the reset is huge. Um, getting, getting, that was one of the things that the SEAL teams are, are are doing better at trying. I I want to my feature for Dan is that after I you know find a way to raise enough money, I want to have a I want to get a ranch. Right, a lot of guys have ranches, but the plan is for me to bring guys come home from deployment and they go to that ranch for two weeks. By themselves, just the guys. The next week, they bring their wives. The next week, they bring their children. And so essentially for a month, they are slowly decompressing in a wilderness environment where alcohol is not available, where they're given tools, counseling tools, they're in a safe environment to slowly decompress them, to turn them off, and then return to their home. Right now, guys come home, they, they, they do some kind of, they do a gathering, they do it, and it's a few days long, maybe a week long, but you, you have to turn these guys off. I also hope that special operations has a mandatory desk period 
So you're going to get out at 20 years, you're 18, you're behind a desk. We are going to, your career is over. You're going to go to counseling. You're going to get your blood work done. You're going to get in your, your, your surgeries done. You're going to slowly start decompressing yourself in the civilian life. And those are the things that I think about because I know they work. And, and those are the things that I'm really trying to work on, you know, uh, with, with my organization right now. Absolutely. What's interesting is uh, Andy was telling you about, um, you know, him almost transitioning out without getting his disability. And it was, I believe, Kirk Parsley was the one that took the, the reins on that and, and, you know, got him the disability that he has now. But again, we don't have that in the fire service. Like when you retire, some departments, I'm sure, might do it well, but a lot of them, you know, the, the bay door closes behind you on the last day and that's it. And as you mentioned, yeah. you have this tight knit crew this person that's worked 20, 30 years, you know, every third day, um, and then the door closes behind them and that's it. And, and I was going to ask you about this in a moment because I heard you mentioning about rank and addiction that you're seeing. But I think that a lot of the, the mental health issues, the uh, alcoholism, the suicide that we see in the fire service, yes, there are some younger ones, but I've noticed it tends to be the older firefighter, either still active duty but behind the desk or retirees. Yes. Every, I, I literally just this week treated my first patient in their twenties, my first special operations patient in their twenties. I just treated the first one this week. Every single other guy I've treated is 40 years or older, E7 ranking above. Yeah. And even this, am I right in, in understanding? I forget where I heard this one, but someone was saying that the, uh, the military suicides, um, they're attributing it more to the world, uh, excuse me, the, the Vietnam generation. And I think that's an interesting parallel because of, of all, you know, the conflicts that we've had, that was the one where, you know, they really didn't have that kind of transition home. They, they had that baby killer reception. And that's, that's what's going to happen in 20 years from now. Look at how cops are being treated right now. The way cops are being treated right now is the way our military is treated at the end of Vietnam. Yeah, absolutely. You're going you're, you're gonna to have, in you know, police officers 20 years from now, you're going to have an epidemic of, of, of crazy proportions of suicide because you, you devoted your life to helping to protect and serve. And you're being questioned at everything you do, videotaped for everything you do, treated like absolute shit just for doing your job. There's repercussions to that. They're coming. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to transition some closing questions. Just one more takeaway. I could talk to you for another, you know, two hours easily. Um, <laughs> what What are some of the things that you would like to see in in mental health, wellness, and resilience in the tactical professions, whether that's you know special operations, police, fire, or, or any of the associated professions? One, I think that um, units that are under high stress should have a counselor embedded into that unit. And not there to counsel, just be part of the guys. So when the guys are ready to talk, guys and girls, pardon me, when they're ready to talk, it feels comfortable because they know that person. And so I was part of an organization, the only privately funded humanitarian team and disaster aid response team in the world. We did this by accident. We had an incident in the Philippines where one of our team members refused to leave. And we didn't know what to do. She was a female. We're all you know barbarians. And in our brain, we're like, well, if we choke her out, we'll just get her on the bus, right? <laughs> so when we came back, we hired a mental health professional, and Kim Veronin basically became part of the team. And what ended up happening within about three or four months after Kim started working there, people started taking walks with Kim. 
And it became so normal to see Kim with somebody on the team taking a walk. There was no stigma to it. He needed to talk. That's what Kim is there for. And it, and she was wonderful at it. Right. And I believe that's what needs to happen in those high stress environments is you need to have somebody who's part of the team who their entire job is as a counselor. And after people get to know them, they'll start talking Two, I believe in mandatory pre-retirement. So you're a firefighter, you're a, you're, you're a firefighter, you're a cop, you're a military guy, you know, you're going to retire at set number of years, reverse those years. That guy should be behind a desk. That guy should be going and getting his all his vitals checked, all his body checked, his brain checked, and starting doing therapy at every single facet because they won't do it on their own. We all know this, right? Um, and then the final part is giving them the tools to do a job afterward. And so you have mission-oriented people, firefighters, police officers, military guys, And they're trying to get them to become corporate people. And a lot of them don't want to go back to college. They don't want to do things. You need to find ways to give them a mission. And I was lucky enough to find my mission. And now I have 25 other SEALs that work for this company who do a job called Sober Escorts. And we pick our patients up and we take them to therapy. Or we pick up our patients from therapy and we take them home. They're mission-oriented men. And... This happened again by accident. It wasn't this brilliant epiphany that I had. We had a company offer us this service and want to charge us this extravagant amount. I'm like, shit, my friends can do that for half that price. And it gave me a chance to start hiring guys, one, two guys the first time, and now we're up to 25 guys. And it's been a massively impactful program. And you can do that in so many different facets because a firefighter just wants to serve. So how do I get him back into service? There's humanitarian teams all over the world that nobody knows about that, you know, this humanitarian team I was part of one third of their team was firefighters because they deal with massive stress under pressure. And it's not a gunfight. They're, they're medically trained. They know how to do structural collapse. They know how to deal with cars that are freaking, you know, overturned, find stuff like that for guys to do in their older age, give them a new mission, you know, get them into boys and girls clubs, get them into football coaching, get them into coaching in general, because Kids' sports are always lacking in coaching or get coaches that suck. There's nothing better than a mature male coaching something. A mature female is why I keep – I forget about that. I apologize for that. For no, that. it's okay. <laughs> You're back from, a, from an all-male SEAL team, so it's forgiven. Yeah, you, you have to take mission-oriented men and women and give them new missions. That needs to be a focus of people during that two- to three-year transition to retirement. Brilliant. Now, what, what was the uh, humanitarian group that you were with? Uh, it's called gsd.ngo. So global support development.ngo. Brilliant. All right. Well, uh, firstly, I want to uh, just transition some closing questions. Um, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we discussed today or something completely different. Oh, man. I'm, you know, I read books that are probably, um, people are probably like, well, how does that have to do anything? I, I'm, I'm a history guy. So, um, one of my favorite books is uh, People of the Infinite Moonlight, which is about the Apache Indians. I love that book, not for the message, just for to see the hardiness of people who want to work hard. I love that. Um, I think that I think that leaders would get a lot of, a lot out of Jocko Willink's book, um, Extreme Ownership. I think that husbands 
would get a lot out of Tom Shea's book, which is called Three Simple Things. Both of Tom's books are really good about parenting and being a husband, and he's a you know highly decorated SEAL. Um, those are those are the books that I've read that have had a lot of impact on me. Um, I, I think those are good starting places. You know, I, I I'm I, I wish I could read more, <laughs> and I have a lot of excuses as to not know why, and none of them are good. But those are the books that have made a lot of impact on me lately. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Well, then what about a, a film and or a documentary? Oh, man. Um, I watch a ton of documentaries. Um, that's how I ride my bike in the morning. So I've been watching uh, Drugs. Uh, Drugs Incorporated on Netflix is a good one. Um, man, I watch so many of them. Uh, Dirty Money was a great one. I think everybody should watch Dirty Money. Um it's just Netflix has some really great documentaries. The the one on the medal, the guys who who've received the Medal of Honor. I'm watching that one right now. One of my friends is going to get the Medal of Honor in March, and I'm um, you know it's it's humbling and but it's exciting. You know he's such a good man. His name is Brian Contosh. Um, he's a Marine officer and just an amazing human being. You know, amazing man. I'm I'm so happy for him to be able to get the our nation's highest award. And what an amazing leader. You know, people out there, if you're a business leader and want to have some some guys come in and give you some crazy impactful speeches call me because literally my guys, Brian, uh, Brian Contosh, Chris Smith, uh, Derek price. You talk about speakers. Like I'm, I'm, I, I like hearing them talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem. I mean, you know, I've talked about this a lot. There are so many amazing people out there. I, I got asked a while ago now when I was just doing two episodes a week, like, Oh, do you ever worry that you're going to run out of people? I'm like, no, I don't have enough episodes in a, in a week to put out all these amazing minds. So, you know, every time yeah. I ask someone, which will be my next question about guests, you know, it's just a ripple effect. Each person tells me three or four people. And now you've just been given a list of, you know, 500 amazing people to get on the podcast. So, well, with that being said, who is there anyone that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions? Yeah, th- I think those two guys um, would be really good. Chris Smith and uh, Brian Contosh. So Chris Smith, um, I can't talk a lot about his past. Uh, I, I'd let him be comfortable with it, but he was a SEAL who was selected into the, one of the most secret units to exist. And I can't even identify what that unit is. And he lived uh, a very, very, very secret life. But the way he lived it, you would expect him to have all this, all these mental issues, the exact opposite. Literally one of the most inspiring human beings to walk the earth. And his name is Chris Smith, Chris with two S's, Smith, and he owns a company called uh, Trident Mindset. And then Brian Contosh, uh, Brian, again, has every excuse to be a horrible human being for everything he saw. Brian spends his life helping his fellow Marines uh, recover from war. And they're incredibly impactful in my life. Beautiful. And, I'm, and I saw you mentioned um, working with Johnny Walker Um is, is that someone that you think would be able to do a podcast or is he still in a position where, you know, he, he can't be out in the public because of the threat? No, no. Johnny can do a podcast. He's great. You know, I mean, if you think I cuss, you wish you get Johnny on there. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, that's, that's three names. Thank you so much. Um, all right. So the last question before we make sure where people can find you and also we'll talk about Spartan 7 as well. Um, what do you do to decompress? So I own a company called Spartan Seven Adventure, um, and it's a we basically do executive adventures. So a lot of guys out there do SEAL type adventures, but uh, mine are actually adventures that are not tactical training. So we do training in there, but I I like to go out there and I like to teach people SEAL stuff, not Bud stuff. 
So there's no push-ups, sit-ups, spraying of the hose. I teach them how to shoot. I teach them how to drive cars, jump out of planes, et cetera. Um, and while we're doing that, I teach lessons that I think apply to business and leadership. That is also a business for me, but really they're vacations because I do run a massive company. And um, it, it does get stressful. And there are times where I, I need a break. And that company allows me to go hang out with some really cool clients and then hang out with my fellow instructors who I just named to you. Those guys are all my fellow instructors. And you know, what I give my clients is if Chris Smith gets on stage and speaks, she's probably going to pay, you know, whoever's going to hire him is going to pay 30, 30 to $50,000. Same with Brian. Well, you're going to get to hang out with them for a weekend for a fraction of that cost. And they're not just there to talk to you. They're there to instruct you and they're there to just be your friends. And uh, that's Spartan 7 Adventure. Um, I also have a security company, uh, Spartan 7 Security, and we only deal with a, a very small clientele, some very, very notable high net worth people, uh, but we don't advertise it. And I'm very selective of, of who, I, who, who, who I guard. Um, they don't guard assholes. Um, <laughs> so that company, nobody needs to contact me about that. And if you need me, we'll figure that out. Um, so those are, those are my personal companies. And then, you know, I, I do the Instagram thing, you know, so there's Dan Cirillo on Instagram, there's Spartan seven adventure on Instagram, and then there's uh, taco actual, <laughs> which is my, it, it, I it never intended it to be a public page, but it, it has turned into one. It's where I get to be sarcastic and funny and, and basically be stupid because I really don't take too much shit seriously, you know? And so I make a lot of, I have a lot of jokey, funny things on there. You'll never, I, one thing I don't do is I don't say negative things. I, I, I try to find humor in a lot of things and sometimes it pisses people off, but I really don't care. So <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> All right. And then what about American addiction centers? Where do people find out about that? Yeah. So we, we, God, we have 20 million hits a month on our websites. Um, so yeah, American addiction centers.com, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty simple. We have uh, nine hospitals around the country. Um, we have three hospitals designated for veterans and I'm getting a fourth one licensed as we speak. And uh, yeah, we treat, and we have 2000 beds. We're the biggest company in the world for addiction. And, um, yeah, we have, we have a great company. We, we do, we do a lot of good things. You know, we've had some bad press lately because, uh, from a financial standpoint, the company struggled, which is why I was, I was, you know, brought in to be, to help rebuild and restructure the company. And, you know, we went from bleeding a lot of money to now we're we're a profitable company and we're going to keep our lights on. We have new owners and, uh, we're going to save more lives. Brilliant. Well, speaking of the financial side, with with the SEALs obviously being veterans, is it the VA that, that's able to help fund it so they can send these men there? Yeah. So President Trump, um, you know, whatever side of the politics you sit on, we'll go down the road. But President Trump signed a Community Care Act. And that Community Care Act basically identified holes in the VA system. And with those holes, veterans can request to go to outside therapy if they go to the appointments, get the referral appointments. So we have partnered with the VA as a referral source and so I believe we have 50 VA referral sources that veterans, if they want to go to addiction treatment, go to their appointments. There's two appointments they believe to go to. And then we bring them into treatment. The great thing about the VA is most insurance companies, we might get 20 days of therapy for a patient. The Veterans Administration has given us 90 and 120 days. So if a veteran wants to stay with us for a long period of time and get all the tools he needs, we can provide that. And it's at zero cost to the veteran. 
I love that because that's one of the barriers to entry that we have in first responder community is that there might be a great, you know, a great professional in your town, but they're just not able to get it. They're not in network or, you know, it's cost prohibitive. So that's so good to hear that you got that taken care of. All right. Well, Dan, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, you've been so generous with your time, well over two hours today, but I mean, you've got such a powerful story and the position that you hold now. Um, in the uh, American Addiction Centers, I think is is a very important story for people to hear. So thank you for you know telling your story. I'm sorry that it was upsetting, but um you know I truly, <laughs> but I appreciate. It. I mean it needs to be told. It needs to be heard. Should I say? So thank you so much for taking the time today. You're very welcome, and thank you so much for having me on the show.